0: Law 13 is when asking for help, appeal to people's self-interest, never to their mercy or gratitude. Stephen, why is
1: that such a big deal? So this gets to the idea of people are always going to make their fundamental decisions about in a way that most helps them. Now, you know, I think we all conceive of ourselves as generous, loving, kind people. And so you know maybe this isn't talking about when you're when you're reaching out to your brother or your parents. but this is more in you know the the corporate environment in you know business in Survivor, when when you are asking someone to help you, you have to make a pragmatic appeal that's actually going to make sense for them. And if you just say, you know, be generous with me, or remember these great things I did in the past, they're not going to really care that much. You know, they'll remember them. They might even be a little bit annoyed at having to remember them. You know, no one wants to feel uh, a guilt. You know, let's think of the French, for example. You know, we help them out a lot and they've been resenting us for it ever since. So if you help someone out, you know, in a big way, uh, they might, you know, that might not actually help your relationship with them. That might hurt it. So you've got to continue to appeal to their self-interest and not, you know, sort of the more emotional parts of your relationship.
0: Yeah, there's so many times in real life where this ends up uh, coming about. Where it's like, you know, you get into all sorts of problems. Where it's like, you lent money to somebody, and then it's like, well, I'm moving today, so I really need, I really need your help. And it's like, well. You know, I did lend you that money uh, recently. Like, I figured you would help me move, and you know, it ends up just being a you know a real thing that screws up a relationship when you are just relying on. It's like, well, I did this for you, so you owe me, and so uh, this creates all all sorts of problems in marriages and all sorts of stuff like that. Of like, you know, well, I made you breakfast yesterday, so you know, aren't you gonna do this and it's all sorts of problem. So you never have to rely on what people feel like they're owed for something that, that you did. And you really have to sort of like be thinking at all times what's in it for the other person what could i do to incentivize this other person to do that and it's really important in when you're you know trying to pitch something to somebody in real life or you're trying to make a sale in real life or especially when you're trying to get somebody to do something in survivor
1: now i mean this sort of relates to to that law of you know make yourself indispensable or make yourself useful um or learn to keep people dependent on you, you know, it, it, there's, there's some overlap here where this idea of if people have a need of you or if they see, you know, your, your interest being aligned with their interest, then they'll go out of their way to help, help you. But if you're kind of not that useful to them in any pragmatic way and you, you know, you ask for their help or you ask for their mercy or you ask for whatever, they're going to be less inclined to actually take, take action. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that that there is some overlap here. But I think the the distinction here is when, you know, you're the one asking for something here. Right. And it's not so much where the other people are depending on you. It's like I'm trying to get you to do something that you weren't going to do anyway. And so the reason that I have to be thinking of it, I have to be thinking about it from your perspective of if I were Steven what would i want to hear what would i what would incentivize me to do this thing and so you really have to remember this sort of thing like when whether it's trying to you know get somebody to go somewhere or come out or go on a date with you or any of these things where you're trying to convince somebody to do something you have to make it seem interesting to them and not just like they're doing something for you out of charity or out of good feelings for you because people will always do what's or most of the time will do what's in their self-interest rather than just be a good
1: person i wasn't saying they were the same law i was just saying there's some overlap all right i'm just trying to like draw out the emergent properties at the heart of the book
0: no i think that there's probably some people <laughs> who might be saying well what's the difference between this and what's the right, difference right, between
1: right, that right. yeah no, no, not it's good it's good we, we want to both show similarities and show the clear the distinctions between each of these 49 laws
0: Well, let's start to look at some of the ways that this has shown up in Survivor. And I think a pretty good example of this comes to us from Survivor Blood versus Water, where we have a situation when we get to the final six people in the game and Hayden is looking like he's going to be the next person to be kicked off. Now, he has a pre-existing relationship with Sierra and Katie, who was also on the tribe of the loved ones from earlier in the game. And they were actually somewhat close of people that were in an alliance. But Sierra ends up going off and being what she thinks to be the third person in Tyson's alliance. But it turns out that she's actually the fourth. And, uh, you know, Hayden is just working it and working it and working it. And he's trying to get her to switch and trying to say, you know, Uh, You should you should come with me because you are going to be the fourth, you know, you're the fourth person voted out and she doesn't she doesn't want to do it. But it's not until Jervis ends up making a slip of the tongue and saying that Sierra is the fourth person in the group and ends up like counting it off one, two, one, two, three, four, (laughs) that now Sierra sees that she actually is going to be the third person there. And so Hayden is able to sort of push that and get her to see that it is in her own best interest now to do what he wants her to do and not necessarily, you know, go ahead and vote with him because of the relationship which they had had through the whole first part of the game.
1: Yeah, that's a great example. And you know, I think in survivor it's just often the case where people are coming to you with plans that are emotionally based, you know, we need you, we want you. And, uh, you know, those plans shouldn't work out if they do, you know, or those appeals, you know, if someone is buying those appeals and they're not a great player, you know, the appeals need to be uh, to the actual, you know, their self-interest. And, and one, you know, another example with Ty- with in, a, in a Tyson season um, is in Heroes versus Villains, where that, that famous vote, you know, where, where Tyson essentially votes himself out of the game. Well, so what happens there is that Russell knows what's up. You know, he he sees what's about to happen and he goes to Tyson and he appeals. He doesn't say to Tyson, you know, help me out. I'm new. You know, I'm this new player you've never met. You know, I'm so weak. I have no power in this game. He instead says to Tyson, you know, if you switch your vote and vote for poverty, I will be loyal to you and only to you. And Tyson has this idea that wow, this is an opportunity for me to get Russell completely in my pocket. So Russell, so so, so Tyson does in fact switch his vote. Uh, he's not doing it for Russell. He's not you know he's not doing it you know to help Russell out. He's doing it because he thinks it's going to advance his position in the game. Uh,
0: that's always a, a situation where people are like, oh, I don't really understand what did Tyson do. Why, why would he do that? Did he vote? Was he just being stupid yeah, that day? Yeah. And so,
1: lot, you know, there's probably like 18 laws that go into that, like one momentary decision.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, people are always going to be doing what they think is going to help them try and, and win the game. I also like in Survivor South Pacific where after Cochran makes the move to flip and obviously he flips because he thinks that that's going to better his game and the people who are on his tribe on Savaii think like, well, you owe us because we didn't vote you out earlier. So that you, that's why we are so mad at you because you owe us for the past that we kept we kept you around. So you have that part of it. But then Cochran flips over and goes with Coach and Sophie and Al and thinks that he has a final four deal with them. And so when they get to the point when I guess it gets to the final seven and it's Cochran's the only person left from... His old tribe, and he's like, "Hey, well, I, you know, I saved your butt back there when I flipped over, and you know, don't don't I deserve to go further with you guys?" And they're like, "Well, that's not really what's good for our game." So they end up voting out Cochran because they don't feel that that's what's in their self interest to keep him around. So
1: basically, anytime anybody flips. This they, this law comes into play because as soon as that person has flipped, they have served their purpose, and the alliance will now vote them out. They will never feel gratitude for that move. They will only feel uh, that you know a lack of self of, of self interest. You know it's 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 useful to them once, and it's not useful to them anymore. Uh, and because you know we should never skip any of these laws without talking about Boston Rob. You know there, we can talk again about that Boston Rob lex power dynamic um, in Survivor All-Stars where Lex goes to Boston Rob and says remember how I saved Amber you owe me and Boston Rob says nope yeah
0: Boston Rob basically says like uh, like I I said I would help you if I can and I cannot. <laughs> so right, right. basically it sort of like changes, like, ah, but you said that you were gonna do that for me. It's like, well, that's really not in my best interest now. So I really have to go ahead and and you know do whatever. And the fact that, you know, Lex is reminding him about, hey, well, remember that time when I saved your butt and I did that thing? That's annoying to Boston Rob and makes him want to vote Lex out more. So again, if you are doing good deeds or feel like you're getting brownie points or being a martyr, that, that's that's all well and good. But just remember, it does not mean that much. And people will, you know, maybe feel bad a little bit, but they're still going to do whatever is in their own best interest.
1: You know who's good at actually appealing to people's self-interest is, is Spencer. Uh in um, Survivor from Survivor Cagayan, who he was always really great at making all of his appeals about how he could help that other person. You know, he never said, pity me, save me. Uh, It was always, here's how I'll help you. And that is true from the very beginning of the game when he made that appeal to Tasha and Cass to keep him instead of Jatia. You know, it wasn't, I'm such a super fan of the game. It's I will be so loyal to you. I will help you out, and we definitely saw that along the way. Where he with Tony, he said to Tony, "You know, I can help you stop a women's alliance. Uh, you know, vote out Jeffra because that's in your self interest. You know, because you're prohibiting some. You know, you're keeping your own power in this game. Um, even at that final uh, four, right. when uh, you know he makes this appeal to Tony that, you know, Tony." If, if it's a final two instead of a final three, it makes sense for you to keep me around because you know then I'll be a threat and I'll get voted out next you know it, it doesn't work but it is really just the way he puts it does it almost work we don't know if it almost works but uh he's he's phrasing it in the right way he's coming at it from like the the exact right perspective. let me give you one
0: more too Stephen in this chapter. How about back in Survivor Fiji at the final five when Yao Man gave the car he won in the immunity challenge to Dreams in exchange for if they got to the final four, that Dreams wasn't going to win immunity at final four and let Yao Man basically pass and Dreams would go out of the game with a car because it seems like on paper, Hey, we are this, we're doing a good job. We're, we're making deals, but we have Yao man gives the car to dreams at final five. And then dreams has the car, (laughs) or at least he has, you know, that in the future he will get the car. He's already gotten what he wants. And then when it came time for him to live up to his end of the deal, what happened?
1: Uh, He honored it and (laughs) Yao Man won Survivor of Fiji. Dreams, knowing there was no chance of him winning, you know, honored the deal, brought Yao Man along, and he won. Yeah, it was the satisfying conclusion to that season.
0: Absolutely. So, when they got to the final four, it was instead Dreams wanted to then compete.
1: Yeah, classic, classic moment, you know, in Survivor, and you know, really goes back to the core of this law, which is that you cannot appeal to someone's, you know, former gratitude you know you yao man lost all of his leverage when he gave dreams the car why would dreams honor that
0: yeah and so it had already happened yao man is like hey remember when i gave you that car (laughs) now you have to go through with the deal and now we got to the point where yao man is no longer appealing to Dream's self-interest he's saying hey remember i did you that thing and i gave you that car like there was no strategic benefit for Yao Man to be able to convince Dreams, or if there was, he didn't do
1: it. So what should, what would, like, the, the right way for Yao Man to handle that situation be?
0: Well, the problem was that Dreams would have had to basically lose the game, so... Yeah, Yao Man could say you will, you know, you you definitely won't win if you give me the thing. But he was asking Dreams to commit suicide in the game and and basically just step down for in exchange for the car. But he already had the car, so there was now no incentive for him. The only thing that he could have done is say like, hey, let's you know vote out Earl or let's vote out let's let's hey let let's make a new alliance here and go in a different way because there was no strategic way to get him to lose the game because there was also so, prize money that he would he would get more prize money also right. if he screwed over Yao man so he'd get like another what fifteen grand or whatever, and then but ultimately because he ended up they both tied for zero votes, I think they both got a hundred thousand dollars uh dreams and Cassandra, so it was a good financial deal on all fronts for dreams to screw over Yao man
1: yeah, and so Yao man clearly should have you know not given up the card then and maybe used it at that actual moment at the final form unity and said you know hey i'll give you my car in exchange for this now whether or not dreams believes him who knows but at least he would have actually had leverage at the point where it counted Uh, and that's really what you know what the core of this law is i mean the other thing is that everyone thinks that they have a really solid shot of winning survivor so even though we as the viewer knew that you know dreams is no way dreams is going to win dreams in his head probably thought, oh, I can win. So, you know, and I get a car. Great.
0: Yeah. Yeah, man had a horse. He had a carrot. Right. But then he fed the carrot to the horse. Yeah. And, and then, then took the ride. And then and then he had no, no way to direct the horse then.
1: Yeah. Once you once you've given up your carrot, you know, forget it.
0: So the next time you need something from somebody else, instead of begging for help from someone you think owes you, Think of a way to appeal to that person's greed. Not only will a greedy friend be more likely to give you what you want, a greedy enemy will be too.
1: Law 14 is pose as a friend, work as a spy,
0: yeah, Stephen, this is something that is, comes up a lot in Survivor and, and in real life because, you know, you're always meeting people who are always like, you know, if anybody came up to you and was like, hey, I'm actually a spy, you wouldn't talk to them. <laughs> you, would, you would say yeah. that, one, you're a
1: terrible spy. I would definitely talk to that person. If someone came to me and said they were a spy, I'd be like, oh my God, tell me all about that.
0: <laughs> no, but they're spying on you.
1: Oh, I see. Well, I wouldn't talk about myself.
0: Yeah, you would give them false information. So that would yeah. be that would be perfect. But you know, people who are going to be spying on you and what you're what you're doing are going to come up to you and act like they're your friend. And the thing is that you want want to one be aware that that happens. And number two, when you are doing it, that there are lots of things that you need to remember on how to do that efficiently to not sort of tip your hand that you are actually spying on people and that you actually aren't. um, You aren't their friend, but you need to make the person who you are spying on feel like you are so that they feel very comfortable with you and divulge plenty of the information that you need to know.
1: I mean, also, like, the word spy is a little bit misleading here. You know, it's not like we were saying, join the CIA and gather, you know, highly sensitive information. The idea is that you can use these social encounters to learn things that are important to you. You know, it's not just, you don't just always have to be having friendly banter. You can ask pointed probing questions so that you can learn information that can serve you well uh, interpersonally, in business, on Survivor, Uh, you know, the word spy makes it sound like you've got, you know, like a dark brimmed hat and a cloak on or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah.
0: The idea is going to a party and talking to somebody who is a competitor of yours in a friendly way and listening for information that they may be telling you, which could be relevant to
1: things you're doing. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, it, it sounds it, – it, it might be something that a lot of us ju- do sort of intuitively. You know, you're with your friends. You say, oh, how was – you know, tell me about that business deal or, you know, what's going on at this company? And, you know, it might be genuine curiosity or there, you might be a little bit self-interested in it. And I think this law is saying, you know, you can use those friendships to kind of gather that, that self-interested information.
0: And the other thing that they talk about in the book in this chapter about uh, working as a spy is that the idea of hiring a spy is dangerous because you don't always know if the person that you're hiring to be a spy has actually flipped on you or is spying on you or is giving you bad information. So really, the only way to really nail down that you are getting the correct intel is to be the spy yourself.
1: So so the, the the book gives six tips on the art of spying, and I actually really like them. So, I mean, I thought it would be worthwhile for us to run through them if you don't think it's- uh, Sure, is one know.
0: of the tips to get a bunch of leaves and build a shack for your spying? Is that the ideal <laughs> yeah. way to do
1: it? Yeah, that is like the number one thing is spy shack actually. So Tony must've read this book before he went on Survivor because having, you know, in, in the business world, it's more, you know, set up an office next to your friend's office and drill a hole. In the wall
0: yeah well that's perfect all right so yeah. th- let's start to talk about the six tips on the art of spying and then we'll get into some of the ways that people have posed as a friend and acted as a spy
1: on survivor so number the number one tip is just basically the restatement of the law pose as a friend while secretly gathering information uh so people will think that you really like them and they will think that your pointed questions are just friendly you know friendly curiosity and not the devious, manipulative questions that they that they actually are.
0: Right. And the second tip is learn to possess the ability to suppress your thoughts in conversation. Speak only when necessary. And there's an earlier law about this, but you know, you'd be amazed when you are in a conversation like that and the other person, especially when there is alcohol involved, will just continue to talk and talk and talk. And the more they talk, the more they give up, and the more there is for you to take in if you know not to sort of just mess it all up by giving your own thoughts on everything.
1: And number three, very similar to that, learn to make others talk endlessly about themselves. Now on Survivor, that's very easy. If you're on a season with Coach, it's even easier. (laughs) Um, But people will, when they are talking about themselves, people love to talk about their plans um, and their goals and their ideas And, uh, you know, on survivor, that's, that's very true. You know, if you just ask people to talk, they will tell you what they're going to do.
0: All right. The fourth one, not as relevant for survivors, at least during the game is to organize social gatherings with people who you're interested in knowing this is when uh, people's guards are going to be down again, anytime you get alcohol involved and that is, you know, reward challenges on survivor when people are going to be doing the most interesting talking.
1: Yeah, that's, I was just going to say the reward challenge is a perfect example of that. You know, invite someone who you want uh, to know to the reward. And, you know, I think we saw, we saw, uh, Spencer and Tony have, like, a momentary alliance this season because because of just of a reward-challenge bonding experience. Uh, number five is stir up people's emotions by contradicting them, um, and then they will reveal all kinds of truths about themselves uh, just because if you disagree with them, they will get defensive. Um, and actually, Jeff Probst does this a lot. Uh, in his in his interview style in, in Tribal Council where you'll say something and he'll kind of call you out on it aggressively and people get very defensive and that's one of his his little secrets for getting you all riled up
0: but he doesn't just do that at Tribal Council that as you go through the casting process so Jeff Probst and other people involved in casting will also do this to you
1: oh yeah absolutely um they'll call you out and see see if you if you rattle Or if you start shouting at them and if you if you start shouting at them, then then you'll be on the show.
0: And the final law is something that we touched on earlier is giving them a false confession, because this is the idea of opening up to somebody so that they will actually give you a real confession about some information that would be very useful to you, like basically telling somebody, well, you know, uh, I was adopted and then the other person is giving you some sort of useful information in a confession uh, to them.
1: Or I'm I'm a male model. That's another good one. Yes, and so you know, then they'll they, tell you that they have... I guess, a guess hidden, it's a true confession. The hidden true. immunity idol, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah okay. exactly, exactly.
0: All right, um, so let's talk about uh, Survivor, Stephen. Can you think of an example of where this really happened on Survivor?
1: You know, I think one person who did this really well, and obviously it came back to bite her in the butt, was uh, Dawn and Cara Moen, where she... Everyone thought that Dawn was their best friend. She was their mother figure. You know, Corinne confided in her. Um, Brenda confided in her. It happened over and over again that people were confiding in Dawn and repeatedly she would completely completely betray them um, and take that information that they were giving to her and use it to vote them out.
0: Yeah, I feel like we need to sort of have an asterisk on this with Survivor where you need to be very careful because there is a reckoning at that final tribal council. So I'm not sure exactly how you are able to, you know, you spy, you get the information, you betray the trust of somebody, and then it ends up being can be ugly at times at that final tribal council. So you have to be very judicious about the information you use uh, from your spying.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it might be just a more general just survivor strategy of just shutting up and letting people talk about themselves, you know, asking questions about people, asking questions about their plans. Uh, Again, like survivors are cast because they're extroverts, because they're blowhards, uh, because they're big characters. Everyone wants to Talk about themselves and how great they are and how awesome their game is. Um, and as as your you know as your exit interviews show, everyone can't wait to tell you about how awesome their plans were. So uh, you know I think just just being able to ask those questions can really lead to a ton of information.
0: Yeah, and you also want to be careful when you are being a spy because sometimes in your spying you can give up too much information about your own plans. Uh, in the case of in heroes versus villains. Amanda goes to go sort of spy on Parvati and sort of get her to be be a bug in her ear and get her to sort of uh, play the hidden immunity idol on herself. But she's actually so bad at the spying Parvati is able to infer that they're not actually going to be putting the votes on Parvati. So the more Amanda's saying, like, I think you should play your idol, like, just as a friend, yeah, I love she's, she's yeah. posing as a friend but acting as a spy, but she's doing such a poor job with it that uh, Parvati is able to tell that she's not actually being a friend, that she is being a spy. Parvati sees through it and gets to play her idol on Jerry and Sandra and ultimately blow up the
1: plan that the heroes are trying to put forth. Yeah, you actually have to seem like a real friend and that maybe is the core of this is that you need to really be friendly with these people. Um, and then ask these pointed questions.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point too about it because if all of a sudden you were not my friend and then all of a sudden you show up one day like, hey buddy, how are you doing? Like I'm your <laughs> yeah, friend yeah. now. Like, we're, I, you know, I just have some good intel. So you have to cultivate the friendship along the way because if people already have their guard up with you, it's going to be much harder to be the spy. You need to establish the friendship and work at the friendship and have people really buying into that you are the friend, not the spy.
1: And it doesn't – it's not like the friendship has to be completely, you know, of a sham. You know, you can be a real friend with someone. You can have a real bond and still, you know, ask these spy-type questions. And I think we see that a lot with, you know, survivor players who are able to say at the end, hey, I did make real bonds with you. I also was playing a game against you. And I think Cochran did a good job of that. You know, Tony obviously did a great job of that, of being both a friend and a friend and the spy.
0: And they give a really great example in the book which I which I love so much and this idea comes comes across in a lot of a lot of different ways where there's a way to test if there's two people that may not be loyal to you. And the idea that they use in the book is so you have these these two people that are sort of off to the side. Let's just let's call them, you know, it's Jenna and Heidi. Okay. And, <laughs> and so okay. and so the idea here to test their loyalty is so basically you tell Jenna jenna that i'm suspicious that heidi is a spy and so you know don't say anything to her but i'm suspicious that heidi is a spy and then if you notice a difference in the behavior of heidi when she's around you then you know that you can't trust jenna anymore and you see a lot of this comes up a, a lot of different ways where you just change the story a little bit there's a really great example that happens on i think it's in season 2 of game of thrones yeah. where tyrion lannister yep. tells like three different people the same story with but with one little piece of information changed yeah. and so you can be able to tell you know if a story gets leaked and you know who you told what to um This happened also on Big Brother Canada this past season, where Kenny did this sort of thing where he tested, he gave somebody a piece of information, and then when it got leaked to the rest of the house, he knew that Heather was the person who was uh, telling uh, people other things. So it is definitely uh, a fun way to test people. So the next time you're trying to figure out what your opponent is going to do, don't guess. Just strike up a friendship and wait until they tell you themselves. Law 15 is crush your enemy totally. And Steven, why is this so important to remember?
1: Sure. I mean, I think we, we've seen it over and over again in history and and on Survivor that if you leave one person or one hope alive in your enemy, they are going to... <laughs> were you thinking keep hope alive? Yes. <laughs> I heard you, Snicker. Um, yeah, if you, if, you, if you keep hope alive... Your enemy can come back, and you know russell hant's great great example he kept hope alive uh even though it looked other you know he was like he was in trouble, and he did very well um yeah, so you know if you don't if you you when you have an enemy, you know whether that enemy is a person or a tribe or or an army, if you leave you know any of them living, they will come back. And, and they will seek revenge. And I think, you know, the examples uh, throughout history are numerous, probably. I don't remember any offhand. I'm sure they're there. Um, but you really got to completely obliterate them or they will come back.
0: Yeah, in the book, they use the example of just leaving one burning ember is enough to be able to eventually ignite and start a fire, which is going to uh, have more damage than if you just finish the job. You know, I know. Wasn't this like
1: Braveheart? You know, like that he like his his village was destroyed, and then he like, but he was was a young child left alone alive, and he came back and and you know stood up. Sure.
0: Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, anytime you have a chance, you got to kill Mel Gibson. Make sure he's dead. Don't <laughs> yeah. leave him, and make sure he's that he can still get back up and and get <laughs> yeah. you. Um, just like in Breaking Bad, Stephen, there are right. no half measures. You have to have a full measure. Make sure you take care of the job. Don't leave anything left that could come back and get you.
1: You do always hear like myths and legends, like the sun is is you know left alive and. Uh, as a result, he, he comes, he becomes, you know, he comes back, raises an army and and kills everybody.
0: Yeah. So that's always a, a very bad scenario. So you want to make sure, you know, basically this is, you know, in real life, you want to make sure all your T's are crossed, your I's are dotted. You don't want to leave any sort of like dangling thing that could come back and, and get you later on. So when you are doing a job, make sure the job is finished and that there's, basically nothing that can come back and bite you in the butt later
1: so this could be like paperwork could be your enemy you need to like crush the paperwork and don't leave any papers unsigned because they will they will get their get their revenge
0: yeah that's I mean that could be a, a absolutely a real life example yeah okay so let's start to talk about in Survivor and in Survivor that there's sort of a very clear instance that we see this in the tribal game
1: yeah I mean the you know the classic example of one tribe that crushes the other tribe totally is the pagonging, right? That's we we have the name pagong. It's caught on in, in pop culture. You know, you see it all the time on the cover of Us Weekly about <laughs> Pagonging. Pagonging. No, it is one of, it's one of those words that like everyone in Survivor knows, but like anyone outside of Survivor has no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. But anyway, so in, in Borneo, uh, the Toggy Alliance of Four decided the first targets had to be the other tribe. Um, and they got rid of them one by one um, and completely wiped out the other tribe before they started to turn on themselves.
0: And this is so important in Survivor because it does a number of things. Of One, it's very easy to sort of foster the, hey, it's us versus them. And right. so it makes... All the votes pretty easy because you get to say, hey, let's like, hey, we're final six, final five, whatever it is. And so you get to basically foster this group and you have uh, so much uh, uniting you guys. And then it's also if you get to say to the other people in your group, hey, if anybody from their group makes it to the end. They're all on the jury, so they're definitely going to win. So you're able to sort of appeal to what is best for, you know, the greediness of everybody else because they say, hey, well, don't you want to win the game? Because if that other person gets to the end, then they'll win in the final tribal council. So that's very important to remember I mean, the as thing well. Is
1: we've seen that happen many, many times on Survivor where you fool, you know, the the bigger tribe will foolishly just leave that one person. They're like, all right, they're good. We're dominant. And that person is the person who wins the game. I mean, Chris Doherty is the is the great example of that. You know where he was the one man among all the women. But you know we've seen it numerous times. You know where uh, you know on, on Survivor Samoa when the Galu tribe said, "Okay, it's the merge. We just got to go down the line and knock each of them off." And then and then they're like, "You know what? Actually, we're good. We're, we've knocked enough of them off. Let's start to turn on ourselves now." Um, and that's always a mistake as soon as you let even that one ember as soon as you keep that hope alive uh that that person is going to come back it just happens over and over again so i
0: think that one of the things that we need to talk about is this idea where how do you make it where the people that are in your group all buy into this idea to go ahead and, and go along with this plan to completely uh crush the enemy because if only we
1: had some example of someone who did this perfectly
0: yeah because there is a thing where it's like okay we're the top six and all six of us are going to uh, vote out everybody from the other side however there's going to be a temptation for somebody who is going to be coming in sixth place to go ahead and not go ahead and be on this plan
1: so you really need to be a great player to keep your alliance so in order that they will stay united to uh, to Pagong, the other tribe. Are, do you, can you think of anyone who was able to do that offhand?
0: Well, there's been there's been a few people, but the people that have done it well have been able to foster sub alliances in this group of six. So they're able to avoid that temptation to not finish the job and be able to, you know, keep one of these other people around, but also get everybody on board with this plan to wipe out the other group.
1: I mean, that's the thing, and this gets back to that sort of appeal to people's self-interest, not their mercy or their generosity, when, you know— people will stay together if they believe that staying together helps them the most so if everyone thinks they're going to get to the final 2 or the final 3 and win then they'll then they'll stick with that plan but if it's clear to them that they're, they're an outcast or that the, they're the 5th or the 6th in the alliance then they're going to flip i mean you you know for one of the previous laws you were talking about you know Sierra that example where Sierra was you know it was made clear to her that she was number 4 so she or so she was like yeah, of course I'm going to flip at that point. Um, versus, you know, the, the greatest example, obviously, of someone who, who kept his alliance together, Boston Rob. Everybody in that alliance thought they were going to the end with Boston Rob.
0: I think he's talking specifically about Redemption Island. He also does it well in All-Stars, but he does it much better in Redemption Island where he enacts the quote-unquote buddy system with everybody. And so basically he says, okay, the other guys are the enemies. We're going to vote them all out. And just to make sure that everybody in this group is loyal, you have to have a buddy with you at all times. And basically, if your buddy is doing something that they shouldn't be doing, you need to come back and tell me... That, hey, this person is talking to the enemy and then they're going to be we're going to get rid of them. So basically, you need a buddy and check with me and make sure that everybody in the group also thinks they're going to the end with Rob. So he really had the whole thing on lockdown that whole second half of the game.
1: And he really hit that us versus them thing, you know, with sleeping in different shelters, eating different meals. We'll talk
0: about that because I don't think a lot of people really uh, know that or remember it if if they
1: do. Well so w- w- one thing that Boston Rob did at the merge, you know, typically when two tribes merge, it's this big great moment everyone starts hugging, we all love each other, now we're all sleeping in the same shelter together, let's let's build a bigger shelter that's big enough for all of us, while eating together. Um and uh you know, that can really lead to some alliances forming between tribes. Now what Rob did that was so brilliant was he Said to his tribe, and granted, they were like a bunch of like really young people who, who really looked up to him. So they went along with this. Um, These guys are our enemies. You know, they have to sleep in a different shelter than we sleep in. Um, he made them eat at different times. So there was no fear that anyone would ever intermix.
0: Yeah. And you, you really keep it separate. You make it clear they're the enemy. And then
1: you basically give the people on your side nowhere else to go. Yeah. So this is, a, you know, an easy, an easy law to remember in theory, a really hard one to, to, to actually put into practice of keeping your alliance together. Um, and the people who are able to do it are able to uh, to do really great things.
0: So whether it's survivor business or even sports, when you've got your opponent down, finish them off. There's nothing more demoralizing to you or your team than when an adversary you thought was beat is able to come back and make you deal with them again. So if you've gotten them down, always make sure it's for the count.
1: Law 16 is use absence to increase respect and honor. This is
0: a really interesting law, and this is like a real power move where, you know, there's an idea with everything where it's like, you know, I need to be around to micromanage everything. And that's how I get my power, because I make sure every single detail goes the way I want it to do. And then there's like another... move that goes on top of that where it's like then sometimes i'm gonna take myself out of the mix and i'm gonna let things sort of devolve into chaos because just like that idea before that we talked about of get everybody depending on you this is sort of goes hand in hand with that where it's like well sometimes i'm gonna walk away and see how everything sort of just completely falls apart and that's gonna make people miss me more and that's going to give me even more power because people are going to be wondering, when am I going to come back and what am I doing? And then be so happy when I actually do return.
1: Absence makes the heart grow fonder.
0: Yeah. And this is absence gives you more and more power also. <laughs>
1: right, right. Uh, what happens if you, you go away and, and everyone's just happy that you're gone?
0: Well, then you didn't do a good job in the first place. Everybody's right. Everybody's happy that you're not there. And the idea about that is... It sort of goes hand in hand with this is that the more people see and hear from you, the more common and ordinary you appear. And I think that you've sort of gotten the sense from everything we've talked about where that common and ordinary do not go hand in hand with power because power is about mystery and mystique and people and having this great reputation. And the more and more people hear from you, the less common that, that you end up appearing.
1: So, but you, you've got all these podcasts. Does that mean you're like very common seeming?
0: I think so. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Well, I do feel like that way where it's like, there's definitely something where, you know, whether it's a survivor player or a reality star or a movie star, where the more and more things you see them on, they become totally overexposed. Where it's the people that don't do a lot of interviews and where you you don't see these celebrities a lot, like the J.D. Salingers of the world. You know, it's like they're a recluse that they seem to have power because you don't hear from them and when you do hear from them it's like oh my god this person is this person is showing up and you know steven this happens especially with survivors where there's all these you know message boards and stuff where it's like the people you never hear from have all the you know these reputations of oh my god this person's so great we never hear from them whereas
1: if you heard from them all the time you wouldn't think they were that great it's like that Greg Buis interview. Everyone's like, oh, my God, what is he doing? You know, with this legend to get the great. And the, I didn't hear the interview, but I heard it was like, it was all right. He was, he was fine. He was good.
0: Yeah. So it's basically it's almost like that people get this mystique about them when they go away and that it's hard to ever live up to when they return. But this isn't about disappear forever. But this right. is about sometimes go away. Just so that when you come back, it'll be even greater because people will take you for granted if you don't ever leave once in a while.
1: I think, though, you hit on a really important part of this is that you have to lay the groundwork. You know, you have to, while you're there, be awesome, right? You have to, like, have this incredible impact on the people around you. You have to be really useful and valuable. You have to obey all the other laws. And then when you go away, people are really going to miss you. Whereas, if, like you said, like if you're just sort of quotidian, you know, and then you go away, they're like, oh, okay, that guy's gone. Well, yeah. Whatever
0: there's in real life the example is sort of like okay know when to get to the party know when to leave the party and sort of you don't want to be the one of the people that's sitting around like after the party is over and be one of the last people like oh my god I can't believe this person's still here Uh, they must not have anywhere else to go they must not have anything better to do and also you know know when to skip the party so there's a lot that goes into when to be present when to attend when to leave and when to you know retire and get out of the game
1: right and you know i think for survivor this is really more relevant for um people who come back you know in survivor 39 days you're you're there the whole time right you're not you really can't can't go away for significant periods of time and if you do go away for significant periods of time you know you you actually might become uh, a target Um, You know, certainly we found with with Exile Island, you know, when people were gone for three days, it actually inhibited them bonding with the tribe. And that's sort of that example, that's sort of that that kind of corollary where you have to have established yourself before you go away. But with survivor players, you know, once they have established themselves as big characters, you know, winners of the game or, or people who dominated the game or people who were huge characters on television, and then they go away for a little bit then they're even bigger.
0: Yeah. And so the idea here is to sort of like, you know, pick your spots of when you want to return and when you want to sort of go away from the spotlight. Because as we've seen with a lot of people in the past, where there's a thing as being too overexposed, where there's people that when they come back, it's like, oh my God, this person again. And then there's other people that people are clamoring for, for them to return. Like Steven Fishback.
1: Right. Yeah. See, people, had. I come back on season 20, people will be like, oh my God, why did you bring back Fishback? That guy was such a dud. Now people are like, oh man, how come you haven't brought back Fishback? Absence has made the heart grow fonder.
0: Yes. And feel like, oh my God, we are clamoring for the return of Stephen. Right. Yeah. Who isn't? Who isn't
1: clamoring? <laughs> um, but <laughs> that's, you know, it's like the reverse is true with the Hanses, right? Where it seems like every season there's a Hans and we just, we just all have Hans fatigue. But I bet you in like 3 years on Survivor 40 or whatever when Russell Hans comes back people are going to be like oh my god Russell finally up against Tony and Rod, you know you, you it'll be exciting to see Russell again once we've had a little bit of time away from Russell
0: yeah the thing with Russell was that he came into the game and then he basically was on the show 3 times in the span of 2 years or yeah, i mean yeah. basically he was on 19 20 and 22 so yeah. he was on 3 out of 4 seasons were all Russell. And then also in addition to that, then his nephew was also on 2 seasons and his brother was on Big Brother. So yeah. basically between uh 2010 and 2013 I yeah. think we saw, you know, six times that uh, the Hanses were on the reality TV shows. So no, no,
1: flipped off. You're forgetting oh, a flip okay, off. on
0: CBS uh, between Big Brother and <laughs> yeah. Survivor. We yeah. saw, you know, six times in the period of like three and a half years where the Hanses were playing. So the, the Hanses, we just got over overexpo- exposed to them. And it sort of has taken the luster uh, and decreased the respect that probably Russell's game should have had in those first two seasons that he played the game
1: yeah I think so I think if Russell had left after 19 for a while or or you know certainly after 20 people would be like wow like he was a villain but man did he play but then when you saw him again in 22 and he was kind of you know uh, People were ready for him to go immediately, and and his tribe was one of those people. You know, his tribe wanted him off right away too. But you know, the reverse was sort of true with Boston Rob, where you know, had Boston Rob come back right after season eight, he was a huge character, but he was also a huge villain. Um, you know, the fact that it took them six years to bring him back after that, you know, he had he had kind of taken on this sort of legendary quality.
0: Yeah. And in addition to that, he also did not go far in right. Survivor Heroes versus Villains. So he sort of came back for a little bit, and then was gone again. And it was like, oh man, like uh, like wow, Boston Rob. People were loving Boston Rob that season. Yeah. So then when he then when he came back, his timing was really perfect to come back and and win. And then get out and then he didn't come back you know in season 23 and so he has been really good at you know spacing out those uh times back and forth between the show
1: yeah the season 20 was really like an appetizer of boston rob it wasn't a full boston rob
0: yeah and so you do want to sort of pick your spots and you know that may mean turning down an opportunity to come back to the show in a sort of back-to-back type season. Now, in the case of like Russell and Malcolm, like it wasn't so much that they played back-to-back that hurt them. It was the time in Russell's case of playing that third time right. so close together. So, you kind of want to, you know, there's some of it you can control and some of it you that you can't control, but you need to think about where if you've given people the opportunity to forget about you a little bit or want yeah. you bad enough again like, i
1: bet if jt came back like all of the sort of negative stuff from season 20 would be forgotten you know because he's such a big character had he come back right after season 20 everyone would be like oh my god this guy got fooled but uh, i bet if he came back now people would be like yes jt is back where is jt uh, he's back no he's he's in alabama he's in uh, you know mobile
0: yeah I but I feel like that I mean unless this is part of his master plan and you know he's really playing by these laws like I feel like uh I, I have forgotten about him because he's not on Twitter he's not on anywhere
1: right right um yeah but I, I, he's not really a Twitter kind of guy <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh, yeah I feel like other than you talking about him I'm t- I've totally forgot about JT
1: I'm keeping the legend alive you keep
0: you're keeping it alive but I'm feeling yeah. I'm not feeling the clamoring for more JT.
1: But I'll bet if JT came back, the clamoring would arise. (laughs) It would be a uh, clamoring after the fact. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, they would announce JT and then there would be a clamor.
0: Yeah. But I think that this is like about the timing where it was like if you heard from JT every once in a while that I feel like then people would say, oh, my God, like, uh, where is JT? We'd like we need more JT. But I feel like that he's totally off the map that I feel like there's there's a difference between, you know, going away for a little bit and then and then coming back. But you kind of want to keep the word out.
1: It's still less than Boston Rob, you know, it's getting there actually, but it's still, still, uh, it's getting actually pretty close to the difference between Boston Rob seasons. Yeah, uh, but that was what's so cool about Heroes vs. Villains was that there were these people who hadn't been on the show for so long, like Colby and and uh, Tom Westman and you know, Jerry Manthe, who getting to see them play again, it really added this excitement to watching the show, you know, regardless of their reputation in the game itself. I mean, as viewers, I think we were all super excited to see these people from, from ancient days. But if we had been seeing them, you know, every season, you know, they might not have held up. People always
0: take things for granted, including just how valuable you are. So every once in a while, let other people see what it's like to not have you around. If you're doing things right, you'll find upon your return, there's a newfound appreciation for your services, which is always a powerful thing. Law 17 is keep others in suspended terror, cultivate an air of unpredictability, Stephen. And so we obviously, we don't want people to know what's coming, but tell us about why we want to keep them in a suspended state of terror.
1: Uh, I mean, that's, that's a, a big statement. I mean, a suspended state of terror is big, but I think just generally having them, you know, kind of not sure of what you're going to do next. It, it, People are, for the most part, really predictable, um, and so we're kind of used to experiencing our lives in very comfortable patterns. So if you if you meet with someone who acts unpredictably, who you can't second guess what they're going to do next, you're off balance, and as a result, that gives them control. So you want to be that person. You want to be the one who is doing things that are a little bit erratic, that no one is quite sure why or what you're going to do next, and uh, as a result, you're playing the game on your own terms.
0: And also I feel like the more of an unpredictable reputation that you have as far as like the people don't know what you're going to do next. like anything you do do, people are like, you know, don't react to it on the same way. Like, oh, wait, hold on. Is this what's, I don't know (laughs) what to do. Like, uh, you know, they can't sort of like if they were running, they're sort of like, you know, having a couple of stutter steps to start off where they can't quite get down to, you know, where they want to go.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know they'll also talk about it, right? Like if if no one ever knows what you're going to do, then when whatever you do do is going to be news. People will be uh, entranced by your by your every action. It kind of actually reminds me of you know that old thing about how like slot machines pay off in an unpredictable manner. Like if if slot machines paid off predictably, you would know. Not to play slot machines, but like if, because they pay off unpredictably, that's why we play them because the reward is erratic. Like you never know when you're going to get it. Do you play a lot of slot machines? Well, no. Because, well, I mean, I, I mean, no. You have, but you, I, I mean, the fact of their unpredictable, you know, nature makes me want to play them more <laughs> than if they were really predictable.
0: They They keep me in a state of suspended terror.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, some of the things that they talk about in the book about ways to keep your opponent off balance are the idea of appearing to have no clear strategy. And that's sort of like you want people to uh, not be able to, you know, guess what's going to come next. Because sometimes you do one thing, sometimes you do another thing. And that's really a good way to sort of, you know, especially in the game of Survivor, not always be able to let people guess where your next target is.
1: It's like, I mean, for me, like a really clear way of thinking about this is like with poker, if you're playing against someone who you know will behave, you know, you raise, they'll fold with a marginal hand or they'll re-raise you if they're bluffing you. You know, if you know what they're doing, you can play against them, even if you don't always win. But if you're playing against someone who will do the most erratic things, regardless of their cards, you're scared to play against them. And that gives that person a lot of power at the poker table.
0: The book also talks about scrambling your old patterns. So... Especially when we come back to the idea of people playing multiple times on Survivor, where right. if you have a way that you played the game one time and then you come back and you don't, aren't playing the same way, I think that's another thing that could potentially throw people off.
1: Has anybody ever been really good at changing their ways?
0: Well, I feel like this is a good question that comes up a lot. Um, who would you say is the person that's changed their game the most between one season and the next?
1: I mean, you know, Boston Rob changed a lot, but it's not in like a scrambling I feel old like he evolved. Kind of way. Yeah. He like grew. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's got to be a lot of people out there, though, who just, you know, they just uh, because so much of Survivor, you want to ch- you, know, you look back at your past mistakes and you want to fix things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I don't know.
1: Um Andrea, Andrea is the answer to that question. Um, She came back with season two, and you know, committed to big moves. Anyway, (laughs) so uh, It it worked for her. She did really well.
0: Another thing is altering your behavior to improvise and overcome the weight of routine and habit, because I think a lot of times we are sort of like, okay, this is what we should do. But you know, there's also a part of that where we should be sort of like stepping back and saying, okay, this is what I would normally do. Is this what the next best right move is?
1: It's like George Costanza, you know, doing the opposite of what he wants to do. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. sometimes the uh, George Costanza. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, what's the opposite of, of uh, tuna salad? Yeah. Yeah. I believe it's
1: chicken salad. Uh, (laughs) Uh, Unsettle (laughs) those around you to keep the initiative on your side. That's another way you can sort of keep your opponents off balance. Uh, Just just doing things that kind of keep people shaking up. You know, again, you're the one in the driver's seat.
0: And the last part that they say of the five ways to keep your opponent off balance are to strike without warning and make others tremble uh, when they least expect it. And that's some of the things that we're going to talk about when it pertains to Survivor. Some of the people that have really just been able to, you know, pull something out that nobody saw coming and really sort of uh, keep all, uh, all the other players off balance.
1: It's like the mountain in his fight against the Red Viper. <laughs> We're doing Game <laughs> of Thrones spoilers? <laughs> yeah, It's not a spoiler. I'm just saying something... Ex- Unexpected happened, and as the audience, we were trembling.
0: Okay, so speaking of unexpected things happening, I think one of the people that we really have to associate with unexpected moments on Survivor has to be Russell Hance. And he uh, really took this to an art form in Survivor Samoa because uh, his whole idea was to create a chaotic world so that everybody else would be very concerned about what was happening all the time, and that he would be able to do uh, whatever he wanted. And this sort of started in the beginning of the game when he's doing things like throwing Jason's socks into the fire, where he's sort of like, you know, very happy that the weather is terrible and, you know, doing all all sorts of things to sort of keep his own group off balance. And then after the merge, as we've talked about with some of the other things earlier in this book, that the whole... uh. Galu group, uh, is very unsettled and very concerned with what he's going to do next. And they're never quite able to predict what his next move is going to be.
1: Yeah. And I, I do, I even think that with those foe foes, you know, the fact that they were so unsettled, like really gave him the, the, you know, the, emotional and strategic kind of wherewithal to really take control of that of that tribe you know the fact that someone is stressed out about his socks the fact that someone is worried about you know their food you know when things in this fraught situation of survivor are unsettled even a little bit you know you really can get shaken up and, uh, Russell, because he was the one doing the unsettling was in the position where he could profit from that the most.
0: And don't forget also in heroes versus villains that he took the machete and and uh, hid the machete, and uh, I actually I have a quote here from Russell uh, that he said at that point, that he said, uh, Rob thinks he's running the show, and Coach thinks he's running the show, but I'm going to take control of that. They want to play rough. I can play rough. Getting rid of the machete can cause conflict in this camp. Rob's going to go crazy. The Tribe's going to go crazy everything's gonna go haywire can't find the machete can't eat the chickens can't open the coconuts can't start fire and that's a good thing
1: I feel like if you auto-tuned that, you could really have a hit song. (laughs) It's
0: very lyrical, yes. Yeah, it is, it is. So uh, Russell knows about, you know, keeping things unpredictable. And as somebody who's interviewed Russell a number of times, I also have been kept in a state of terror uh, through most (laughs) of my uh, conversations with Hanses.
1: Well, it's, it's also true that, you know, when in Survivor, when people are very predictable, you know, you just, it's so easy to play against them. You know, when you know exactly what someone is thinking and exactly what they're going to do, either because they are A, telling you, or B, just, you know, incredibly obvious, they're like simple to play against and easy to outmaneuver. So um, on the one hand, you know, it is great to be unpredictable. On the other hand, it's also very, you know, very bad to be predictable.
0: Sure. And one of those transgressions that we... Uh, you know, definitely could reference here is back in Survivor Marquesas where you had the group uh, with John Carroll of that they made it very predictable what the boot order was going right. to be. And exactly. it ended up being something that they were able, to the other five people were able to counteract because they sort of telegraphed what their next move was going to be. And that's going back to that whole idea of creating a smoke screen that goes hand in hand with sort of being unpredictable.
1: Yeah, Uh, Are there any like big, big leaders who have been really predictable and then as a result have, um, you know, sort of lost their their way? I actually on token chains, you know, no one thinks of coaches being a dominant player, but you know he was he has been and he certainly considers himself that way on token chains. He was a leader who was really predictable and who was very clear about what his next moves were. And this is my philosophy. And here's how I'm making my decisions. And as a result, you know, we were able to pick off his allies kind of one by one.
0: Um, And even going back to Survivor Kageyan from this past season, uh, we know that Tony did a lot of things like this to sort of keep people suspended in terror. He made all of these big moves. He had these idols. People were really afraid of what he was going to do next and, and trying to, uh, you know, stay on in his good graces. And so obviously we see that, you know, this is something that people have used very, very well. And in Tony's case, he's able to win the game because of some of the unpredictable things that he was able to do during his game.
1: I actually think that Colton too, uh, you know, Colton obviously was "quote medevac" unquote out of uh, of Survivor um, One World, but you know that he he was at the bottom of his tribe, like fully at the bottom, and then he just started making these moves and doing these things and, you know, randomly voting people out. And, you know, he got the whole tribe to agree to go to tribal council, you know, even when they didn't have to. Um, and as a result, people were really shaken up and Colton ended up kind of taking control of the tribe just through this sort of erratic rule by fear.
0: Yeah. And so, I, you know, in later seasons, you know, Colton is predictable that, you know, he's always going to quit. But in, back in his first <laughs> season, you weren't quite sure exactly uh, what he's going to go, what he's going to do. And I, I also think in Survivor, you know, when you are looking like you're going to be voted off. And we saw that with like uh, Tony, with with Tasha this past season, where if it, you are going to be getting voted off by acting like you're not going to be getting voted off, that's sort of like, whoa, what, what is you know, you're not doing the predictable response. And that could sort of, you know, send other people scrambling.
1: Right, right. So uh, there you go. That's a good lesson to everybody. You know, be unpredictable.
0: That's right. And it also uh, works good for being a podcaster, right? <laughs>
1: yeah. No,
0: you you <laughs> want to be predictable because then uh, people know when your show is.
1: That's very helpful.
0: And you don't want anybody listening to be terrified. <laughs> so remember, when coming up with your next move, think about an idea that might cause your opponent to stop in their tracks. The benefit is twofold. One, they're forced to react to the curveball you just threw their way. And two, now they're forced to spend time thinking what in the world are they gonna do next?
1: Law eighteen is: Do not build fortresses to protect yourself. Isolation is dangerous. What, what, what do you think about this, Rob? Do you prefer to build a fortress or do you prefer to not build a fortress?
0: Well, Stephen, in my personal life, I rarely leave the house, so <laughs> I cannot say that I subscribe to this law. But let me tell you why it is a a good law, and maybe one I should pay more attention to is that you know people think the idea of a fortress is safe. People think this is good. I want to stay safe. I don't want people to get me. I want to protect what I have. I need to make a fortress and I need to stay in it. And keep me safe so nobody can get me because I'm up in my fortress. But the problem is with creating a fortress is that you separate yourself from the things that got you into power in the first place. And then Uh. you don't you're not able to be connected and really hear what's going on in, in the world around you and sort of you lose perspective on things. And you cut yourself off from knowledge, which ultimately, as we know, is power both in Survivor and outside of the game. And so, you know there's a lot of real world implications to this. Like, I know like if you take it like very literal, like, okay, sure. Like in a military sense, like, okay, if I go put myself all the way up in a tower, now I have no idea what's going on with all the, you know, the townsfolk that are, <laughs> that are around.
1: But <laughs> is in, that the real world example? Like the tower? No, and the no, you, that's, that, that's sort of I like the, fairy tale. That's
0: example. the literal version. But I feel like <laughs> yeah. the the real world version of this is sort of like, you know, we've all seen like, you know, office spaces where then, you know, the, you know, CEO of the company, you know, has like this really nice office and is like, you know, often there stays in the office the whole day and you don't really get to see them. But that's sort of the not the smartest way to go. And, you know, I feel like the leaders of companies that are really sort of tapped in are those are the people that are sort of like, you know, uh, hey, I'm going to sit out here in the cubicles with everybody else because they really get a chance to know and work with and hear everything that's going on amongst all the people that are working in the company.
1: Or if they install spy cams, like they could also do that.
0: Or spy shacks, either.
1: Spy shacks, even better. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, obviously, mostly this is not about literal fortresses. It's about metaphorical fortress, uh, the idea of isolating yourself. So you, Rob, you do a great job. Even though you don't leave your house, you have the internet and you have, you know, your podcasts. And that kind of gets that flow of information coming to you uh, from your allies and your enemies both. Yeah,
0: but um, I, I do think that that's a really good thing as far as social media goes in the, in the you know, digital world or the virtual virtual world, you know, the people that sort of like are not tapped in on social media kind of have no idea what's going on in their field. Whereas, you know, people who are really good at social media, and of course I could be better at this, are the people who are listening to what's what's happening and and not just like talking first, but listening first to what everything else that's going on on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, etc., and then are able to have a really good sense of what the public is looking for and what the public is talking about.
1: Yeah, you see this a lot with companies where they just, you know, if some some bad, you know, some negative public response or some bad thing happens to them, and they kind of blast out this tone deaf statement, you know, versus those companies that are able to kind of take in all the information and listen and kind of craft a response that sort of acknowledges fault and is is aware of the greater you know society around them.
0: Yeah. And so now in Survivor, again, there are few fortresses that we are really going to be talking about. Although I know this is a book about Survivor. If we were going to look at this from a Big Brother or a reality TV perspective, uh, Big Brother really has a lot of classic examples of this, because the HOH room, which if you're not familiar with the Big Brother, is that the person who is in power each week uh, on Big Brother is the head of household and they get their own bedroom. And it certainly happens a lot on Big Brother where the person who becomes the HOH gets sort of on a power trip and then they sit up there in the HOH room and make everybody come to them and sort of like have meetings with people and sort of like act like the godfather of the house. And they basically stay up in their room for the whole week. And the people who are really, really good at Big Brother never fall into that trap. And they sort of say, oh, hey, my room is for everybody. You can you can have my room. And they still continue to, you know, mingle with everybody else in the house throughout the whole week and don't fall into that trap of, oh, I'll be up in my fortress all week, uh, you know, enjoying my stay and my power up there.
1: You know, that's Maybe more literally true for Big Brother, but I do think there are some great examples from Survivor. Um, you know, most recently we had Aris in Blood versus Water, who completely, you know, who who was in this dominant leadership position and who isolated himself from the tribe. You know, when he would go off and meditate for long periods of time, uh, which he claims were shorter periods of time, but you know, there was a helicopter filming him, so there was some amount of time that Aris was off meditating, separate from the tribe. But that
0: just means he's he's really good at that because steven I, you know I, i've tried to dabble in meditation and boy if there was like you know a cell phone on vibrate in the other <laughs> room that would take me right out of it and for yeah. artists to meditate through a helicopter right. that's that you know i think he deserves some credit for being an amazing meditator
1: yeah definitely for someone who can look like he's meditating <laughs> for long periods of time uh Aris takes the prize how so how dare you steven uh, yeah um so, you know, and by kind of removing himself from the group, though, Aris, you know, did isolate himself, and uh, as a result, he was not able to kind of keep tabs on the on on his. Allies, his supposed allies, Jervis and Tyson, who were who were plotting against him and then who ultimately unseated him.
0: But I think it's almost like a literal and a figurative thing with this particular example that we're talking about. Because you have certainly the literal thing where, you know, we have the shots of Aris off meditating and you know doing doing his own thing and literally being you know, separated from the group. But I think it was also like mentally, like, I think he felt like he was in a fortress. He's like, okay, I've got Tyson, I've got Jervis and I'm safe. And maybe, you know, wasn't, you know, always trying to shore up the people on the bottom and, 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 you know, making sure that those relationships were all working as well as they should, because he felt safe, uh, in the company of those guys.
1: Yeah, and that's a classic mistake of people who think that they're dominant and then are just sort of unable to, like, really get a feel for the people around around them. I mean, Marcus and Gabon is another example of that, someone who just assumed he was the leader of the tribe, assumed he, you know, he was the top of the top alliance and that everyone else was going to sort of do what he said. And as a result, you know, he kind of tried to boss, uh, was it Crystal or Susie or Crystal and Susie, into voting his way. But because, like, he wasn't really engaged with them because he kind of had this, this – Figurative sense of being in in an an ivory tower. They voted him out.
0: I think it goes back to this idea on Survivor. It's that you know Survivor is just all about just constant checking in and constantly fostering relationships with all the pieces on the board. And you might you know get to a point in the game where you're like, hey, I'm the leader. I'm the boss of this group. I got these five, and everything is great. And the really, really great survivor players never stop with, you know, checking in and making sure that the people on the bottom are just as solid on day, you know, 30 that they were on day 10. And you really can't ignore these people on the bottom and you can't just sort of say, okay, well, I'm just going to talk to these people because they're in my final three and I don't need to worry about the entire final five, final six group that we have. You just need to constantly be working with everybody and making sure everybody. Everybody, you know, continues to feel good about you and never ever gets safe. Because the moment you feel safe is the perfect time for your enemy to strike. Law 19 is know who you're dealing with. Do not offend the wrong person. And Stephen, this law really comes down to making sure when you are screwing people over and when you are offending people, how do we know who the right kind of people that we can screw
1: over are? I don't even think it's just about screwing people over. You know, I think the core of this is that when you're dealing with people, you know, Different types of people are going to react differently to the same kind of, of information or stimulus or thing you say. So you don't want to say the wrong thing basically to the wrong person. And it sounds like pretty obvious advice, but you know, it is it's incredibly important to remember that everyone is interpreting your words through their own very, very specific lens. You know, you don't know if it's someone who's super insecure or someone who's arrogant or someone who's suspicious or you know so there's there's you need to when you talk to people calibrate what you're saying for the way that they're going to react not just think about the information you're communicating but think about their kind of emotional state when you're talking to them because if you say the wrong thing to someone you know if you say something that you think is completely benign but actually ends up spurring someone's suspicion, hurting their feelings, you know, challenging their sense of authority, they're going to react very negatively to that. And they could react negatively to that in a way that ultimately hurts you quite a bit.
0: Yeah. And in addition to potentially offending, like this, this does definitely also talk about, uh, you know, these are the people that you want to avoid, you know, deceiving or you know, running your scam on because for whatever reason, these people tend to have, you know, either long memories or can be very volatile. And, you know, if you're trying to choose your mark, maybe if you can identify some of these people, then maybe you should go somewhere else.
1: Right. There are certain people who will be forgiving of you if you're trying to deceive them or who will, you know, maybe not if think, they catch you know, on. Yeah. yeah, if they catch on or, or if you're, you know, it's it's like a classic example is the survivor jury, right, where you want to have the right people on the juries. You want to put the person out on the jury who's going to feel – you know, outmaneuvered by you and, and applaud your game as opposed to the person who is going to feel that you broke their heart and deceived them. And, you know, was you part of that is the way you act towards them. But part of that is the person they are.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point in terms of the jury as well, because, you know, there are some people where you, they sort of, you know, get burned in the game and then they can come back to hurt you in the game. And there's other people that you burn them in the game and they go out and then they could come back and burn you on the jury.
1: Right. Exactly. Like some people, and that's true in life as well as survivor. You know, if you outmaneuver some, some people and they, you know, some people will just accept that they are beaten and other people will, you know, engage in a scorched earth policy to destroy you.
0: And so they sort of identified, uh, in the book as five different types of people that are dangerous and difficult. Uh, and they identify them as an arrogant and proud man, a hopelessly insecure man, Mr. Suspicion, the serpent with a long memory, and the plain, unassuming, and often unintelligent man. And of course, you could substitute a man for a woman.
1: Um, so what do you think of, uh, I mean, I think the first four of those are pretty clear. You know, if you say something to the arrogant man that, that you know, challenges his, senses, his sense of pride or sense of superiority, he's going to feel deeply wounded in a way that you wouldn't expect. Someone who's insecure, similar thing, right? Someone who's suspicious, if you say anything that triggers their suspicion, suddenly they're going to be after you. You know, the serpent with a long memory. But w- w- The plain unassuming, assuming and often intelligent man, like, what is that? Like, what is there? you know, what's so dangerous about that person,
0: well, you know, in in thinking about this, I mean, this is the kind of person where you know the person who's is smart enough. It's like, okay, I I can you know, game respects game, where it's almost like if you burn somebody who's an intelligent person, they can say, okay, I understand the reasons why you did this to me and I can get over it because logically it makes sense. I'm playing a game against you. You're playing a game against me. I'm in business. You're in business we we both have the same goal and you outmaneuvered me. So a tip of the cap to you, sir. Um, whereas the plain unassuming and unintelligent person can't really identify with logic. You know, you're sort of like, but I did this because this was the only way I could do this to you. And they're like, yeah, but, I'm mad at you.
1: Oh, I think the other thing about them is because they're plain and unassuming, you're not going to be wary around them. And so you might, you know, you might say something that's more likely to offend them without even being without even being aware of it yourself.
0: And Stephen, how about in the very first Survivor? We're talking about the plain, unassuming and often unintelligent person. Um, you have Sue Hawk who ends up on the jury. uh with Kelly, or, or talking about Kelly, and she ends up giving one of the most memorable moments in Survivor history when she gives that really scorched earth speech, and I don't think we've ever seen anything like that on television before, and maybe not ever after. And this is the case of where she was burned by Kelly, and she was going to basically come back after her uh, with a nuclear bomb to re- to go after her. I mean, and really, what did Kelly? really do to her i mean so i mean i think that's a great example of you know crossing somebody who isn't a very intelligent person they're going to come back at you way harder than you probably expect them to
1: and i you know survivor is like such a perfect um you know a perfect crucible to talk about this because you are inherently offending people you know when you when you vote them out or when you're just engaging day-to-day camp life with them. It's such a, a stressful, extreme experience, and you have to be so careful about what you say and how you interact with people. Um, and one example of this that I think is really perfect uh, in terms of knowing who you're dealing with and not offending the wrong person is Cass in this last season of Survivor, Kagayan. And, and that's true both for Sarah and for the way Tasha deals with Cass. So, you know, when you look at Cass, you think this is a lawyer, you know, she's well-educated, she's going to be someone who is confident and secure. But it turns out that as Sarah finds out, you know, Sarah makes some benign remark how she should be trusted by Cass and how she's going to vote whichever way she wants. And Cass completely rebels against her alliance. And what what is so shocking about this is, is when Tasha tries to heal the wound with Sarah and Cass and Tasha focuses all of her attention on Sarah because to anyone's outside perception, you know, Sarah is the one who's erratic, who is the the risky vote, who you need to kind of coddle. But it turned out that by not giving Cass enough attention, Tasha really alienated Cass even further. So as angry as Cass was at Sarah, the fact that Tasha didn't kind of mollify her more fully made her flip on her own alliance. And uh, that's exactly the kind of of situation that that this law is talking about, where, you know, you have to really think about each person as an individual. You can't just assume, well, obviously Cass is a loyal number obviously cass is sticking with my alliance you know obviously cass is is you know well educated she's thoughtful she's not going to flip on on us and cost herself the game you know you sh- Tasha needed to be thinking about, here is the way, here are the ways Cass is insecure, here are the ways Cass is suspicious, and here's why. If I don't give her the same attention that I'm giving Sarah, it's gonna it's going to screw up my whole game.
0: It also can work where, you know, you may not identify somebody as a threat, but it doesn't mean that they're not, because appearances can be deceiving and in the case of my own original season in survivor the amazon um we had an instance where roger who was the basically for all intents and purposes he was the de facto leader of the men's tribe and he sort of you know basically you know called the shots and you know gave out and gave out the orders and i believe if you were to ask him at the time he would think that i was you know sort of you know a pretty nice young man. Uh, he did call me pathetic at one point when he found out (laughs) that I did, uh, karaoke in my parents' basement. Um, but again, pathetic is not somebody who you are necessarily threatened by. And, The whole time he was, you know, basically running the show and sort of bossing us around. He did not realize that uh, he was offending someone who would then be going on to sort of orchestrate his departure from the game. And that's just a sense of him not realizing the people that he was dealing with at that time.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. And what's interesting is that, you know, you not only is this can this negatively influence you, but you can actually use this positively by thinking about Who are the suspicious people around you? Who are the people who are going to react really negatively to this kind of situation? And then use that to your advantage. Um, And, you know, not to be too fixated on this most recent season, but uh, Tony is a great example of someone who did that perfectly, where he went over to Sarah and said, you know, Cliff Cliff and Lindsay are scheming about you, and it just sets Sarah off. And as a result... Uh, you know, Tony played on on Sarah's suspicious nature to get her to turn on Cliff and Lindsay,
0: and even better with Tony that when he decided, I'm going to put Trish on the jury because I know how she's going to react to this, and right. I know she's going to vote for me. And he was absolutely right that she was one, not one of the groups of five people that you don't want to offend. He realized that okay, I could actually get rid of her and get her out of the game, and and still have her come back and be working with me.
1: Yeah. Um, that's just you know and it just comes down to that sort of core of no you know think about the person themselves, you know think about their kind of emotional response to things. Um, you know I think what uh, the, the the master class right the, the classic example of who perfectly tailored their words to each person was was Todd's jury speech in China where he kind of really you know, for each person who came to him, he gave them what they needed and the kind of closure they were looking for. Like when Jean Robert comes to him and says, you know, wh- why did you vote me out? Todd doesn't say, well, you were disposable or you were whatever. You know, he recognizes that Jean Robert is, is arrogant and proud and that he needs to be validated. So, so Todd says, well, you were the biggest threat and you would be sitting here if I wasn't. So he, you know, he gives he, – he speaks to the person through their own kind of, you know, sensibility.
0: And not to go off too much with this person because there's probably a bunch of examples you could talk about. But I think Sandra is another great example of somebody who a lot of the people that have played with her underestimate her. And feel like that they can get away with deceiving her, and a lot of people have learned that it's not quite as easy to get away with because uh, she's very volatile. And so, um, whether it's you know you know blowing you up in front of uh, the jury as uh, she did with you know in the instance of of Russell, and became somebody who was the all the the heroes on the jury wanted to vote for because uh, she proved how much she disliked russell uh whether it's burning his hat or dumping the fish she's somebody who you never want to cross because it's not going to be worth your trouble and i think that maybe that plays into why she does well in these games because she you know you don't want any trouble from her because uh, right. she's <laughs> a pain in the neck to deal with when you offend her
1: all right yeah um and it's true the people who are you know who are the ones that you need to look out for, like they're the ones who often do very well. So, uh, because people aren't looking out for them.
0: By the nature of the game in Survivor, and in the game of power, you're going to have to cross a few people along the way. Always study your opponent before you decide to wrong them. It's far better to screw over someone who takes defeat lying down, rather than spending the rest of your days watching out for the person who makes it their purpose in life to serve you their vengeance
1: Law 20 is do not commit to anyone Now Rob you're someone who is married and uh, obviously have <laughs> and violated this law Yes this law. and I
0: could tell you uh another time why it is a very good law, (laughs) Steven.
1: But how does this, how does it do not commit to anyone? You know, how does it apply in the, in the realm of power?
0: Well, I think that this is really comes down to, you want to keep your options open at all times. And I think that as we're going to see with survivor, you know, and especially with life, it's like, you don't want to, you know, tell people, Hey, I'm not looking to commit to anyone. You want everybody to feel like you are with them, but when it comes down to it, you have to be able to be flexible enough to go any direction that you see unfolding and being able to sort of like, you know, read the tea leaves of what's about to happen and then move to the side that is going to be the best for you. Even if you had been previously committed to somebody else who is sort of like going downhill, you want to make sure that you are always going in the right direction and away from something that could be a sinking ship.
1: Yeah. And I think Green here too talks about the way that, you know, if you don't commit to anyone, you know, then you can kind of stay above the fray. That if, if people feel that, you know, if you're, if you're just in the daily squabbles, you know, then you're always going to get dragged down. But if you're a little bit away from it and above it, you know, then you can kind of pick and choose your fights essentially and go in whichever direction that you think is the right one.
0: Yeah. What they talk about in the book is sort of like the idea that there's basically you and two third parties and the two third parties are feuding well, you don't really want to go side with either one because then you sort of lose your leverage with the other person because, you know, it's better to have both people courting you than to be just with one side. And then you could commit to the side and you could also commit to the wrong side and then you could end up on the losing side and then make more enemies because you committed to somebody where as if you sort of stayed more neutral, you could have been in a better position
1: overall. Now, do you, but you're saying like, you think you should say, you should say to both sides, like, Hey, I'm with you. And then like, see kind of who's coming out triumphant.
0: Yeah. I think you sort of want to like, sort of wait to see where it's going. And then once it's going, then really sort of like, yeah, like I was with you the whole time. What are you talking about? So, what happens
1: when they, when they like, you know, I've, I've had this experience in, in work you're uh, you say ago. in love. And well, I mean, in love, sure, but, uh, you know, in work specifically, where, like, I had these two two people who were squabbling, and one of them would come to me and be like, can you believe this? And I'm like, no, I can't believe that. That's horrible. It's awful. And then, you know, the other one would come to me and said, can you believe him? I'm like, no, that's awful. That's terrible. And so they go, and they have their fight, and then and then both, and then both one of them is like, yeah, and Fish agrees with me. He's on my side. And the other one like, no, Fish agrees with me. He's on my side. I have, you know, I can prove it. And so now I, I look like a jerk.
0: Did you bury the lead that your in office nickname is fish? I mean, you know, come on, <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I, that would have been that would have been my Survivor nickname, except I, I didn't think it was a great idea to go into Survivor being called Fish uh, and not knowing how to fish.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well. Um In the book, you know, Robert Greene does advise caution and says both parts of the law will turn against you if you take it too far. The game proposed here is delicate and difficult. If you play too many parties against one another, uh, they will see through the maneuver and gang up on you. Now, in your particular instance, I don't think you tried to play each other against them, but maybe you were too... you know, there's always a chance that these two people will talk, and you might yeah. have been too. You didn't leave yourself wiggle room to say, "No, I was just being supportive of both you guys." Um,
1: right. I was young. I was young. Younger. I was not a master of the game of power.
0: The game of power yet yeah.
1: at that time. At that point.
0: Anyway, so you know, you, you obviously can see how it's going to, uh, you know, work out in, in real life where, you know, there's always sort of rivals that are butting heads in organizations and all these places. And, you know, you really don't want to overcommit to one side, but let's talk about specifically, uh, in the game of survivor and Steven, this was something that was really important to my game in survivor, the Amazon, because I felt like that all along, like the idea of just like making one Alliance committing to that Alliance and sticking with it all the way to the end, wasn't going to work out for the way that I wanted to play the game.
1: So what, so what did you do? (laughs) Well,
0: I just, I, I just, you know, kept my eyes open for opportunity and whereas we started in Survivor of the Amazon where it was men versus women, right. I was able to then, when we went to mix it up after the swap, then uh, I was very open-minded to this new pair, this new group of people uh, after the swap. And we sort of said, okay, well, this could be, uh, this could be the, the new group. And again, the... I didn't want to, you know, commit and sort of like have sort of a blood oath to this new group of people. You know, I wanted to sort of keep things open with the old group of people. And uh, because of that, I was able to have a lot of flexibility in my game and able to go, um, you know, a lot of different directions where sometimes I could go one way, sometimes I could go the other way. And the idea was that I, you know, I did not commit to anybody, but I did have a a working relationship with everybody, and through most of the game, almost everybody thought I was with them, basically until they went home, up until about day 30 when Alex gets voted off. But even still then, I wasn't totally committed to the group that I had voted with to vote out Alex. I end up going against Christy, and you know, had certain things broken a different way, I would have, you know, gone against, you know, Matthew and Butch, too and gone back and voted with jen and heidi if i needed to so i think the idea is uh you know you want to keep all of your options available but you lost
1: like well, maybe if you had been super loyal to roger you would have won the game
0: uh that's that's possible <laughs> but I, I don't i, I don't necessarily, i'm just kidding clearly yeah. not
1: clearly you advanced from the bottom of a, you know one alliance to the, the the runner of the game
0: yeah there's no law about you know, winning the final three immunity.
1: That's what I, (laughs) that's what I needed to know. We need to add that law, win the final three immunity. Yes. I also would have liked that law. Um, Yeah. You know, someone else who kind of really is is this sort of perfect example of this in in a slightly different way is Sandra, who's, uh, you know, Her, like, famous strategy is anybody but me. And she's someone who never commits herself to anybody and, as a result, never gets stuck kind of being picked off as part of the opposing team's numbers. She's someone whose vote is always up for grabs. And so people come to her. They appeal to her to vote with them, but they never think of her as an enemy necessarily. They know that she's loyal to herself and that she's not you know going to be part of their opposition. So uh, it's a really smart way of kind of, you know, being able to play a flexible game or you know, play a, have a flexible life uh, and and to not ever get too stuck with one group of people.
0: And why don't people get mad at her because they don't look at it as her idea that they just look at it, okay that she was just another person that went along with this idea.
1: Yeah, you know, and she says, "Well, I voted against you because I'm voting with the numbers." You're like, "Well, you know, you know, Sandra's voting with the numbers. It wasn't personal. She's not part of the opposing alliance. You know, I can get her to vote with my numbers once I have the numbers." You know, you think, "Well, I'm not going to take her to the end," but like, you know, there's there's obviously a very long road between the beginning and the end. And by the by the end, you know, she she gets there, right? She's doing it. It's working.
0: Yeah. It also makes the actual show very fun to watch. A lot of the most entertaining seasons have people who did not only commit to. Uh, one group uh, in particular, Johnny Fairplay, also in survivor Pearl islands where he ends up, you know, bouncing around. He's voting with people from Drake, with people from Morgan throughout a lot of the second half of the game. Um, and even this past season on survivor Cagayan you have, uh, Tony, it feels this way that he's not necessarily only going to commit to his group. And when he, when it benefits him, he's going to vote with the other side and Cass as well with somebody who did not only commit to, to her, own, her one group. And, you know, she's open to some other things, uh, at least around the beginning of the merge. And then again, towards the end of the merge.
1: And obviously, it worked for Tony, and then he won the game. But he also got a lot of heat from his alliance for, uh, you know, not always voting according to the party line. I mean, what was what was dangerous about what Tony did in, in a slightly different way than this is that Tony was committed to an alliance, but would often vote against them. So it, it's kind of, I mean, what what do you make of that?
0: It that's where you can sort of get burned, where it's sort of like, hey, this is our group, we're top five, baby, and so that when you do make that commitment to your group, but then you go against them, then that gives people some more ammo to be upset with you down the road. Now, ultimately, for Tony, it, it worked out okay for him, where he was in the finals with Wu. And Trish was, you know, pretty forgiving. And I guess ultimately, uh, so were LJ and Jeffra. And so, you know, he was able to sort of do damage control, but we have seen in the past where, you know, somebody turns against the people in their alliance and then it does not, the jury is not as forgiving.
1: Yeah. I think Tony, it was so many, you know, the perfection of so many laws or so many other things were going into play there that he was able to pull that off. Wasn't necessarily just, his non-committal, you know, like it, it was da- a dangerous game for Tony to play, but uh, in general, it's a good rule. Committing is what you do when you have a lack
0: of power. It's the act of giving up all of your other options. Success at Survivor comes when you're able to keep your strength, and that's measured in your flexibility to make the moves that you think are best. So choose your words carefully when others seek your commitment, because the very fact that they're trying to nail you to something should be a red flag on their own lack of power in the situation. Law 21 is play a sucker to catch a sucker. Seem dumber than your mark. All right, Stephen. Why is it important for survivors or for anybody to play dumb?
1: Ultimately, this comes down to the idea that everybody likes to feel smart. Everyone thinks that they are marginally smarter than the people around them. They think their own ideas are better. No one wants to feel stupid and especially, you know, if you're trying to trick someone or to beat them in the game of power, you know, you don't want to make them feel stupid because they're just going to resent you. They're going to be suspicious of you and they're going to dislike you.
0: Yeah, and – This happens a lot where, you know, there's so many times where you accidentally... Can offend somebody and I feel like especially uh, if you watch uh house of cards I feel like Kevin Spacey's character uh, Frank Underwood get is, is pretty good at doing this with people where you know you you know you throw a lot of things out there like uh, oh you know I'm not as smart as you are about this subject where you know it makes and it just makes the other person feel good and you can sort of like throw a lot of compliments at people and make them just you know be able to you know correct you you might actually accidentally get something wrong and then they can correct you and then they can feel like they have the emotional high ground. And you can definitely play dumb at times so the other person can feel like they're going into your trap that you're setting because they're going to try to rip you off because they think you're dumb.
1: Yeah, once someone feels superior and feels comfortably smarter than you, then they're going to feel comfortable around you and then they're going to then you can sort of subtly lead them. And actually Daenerys Targaryen is great at this. You know, she's always saying, "I am just a young and foolish girl, but" you know, so she's kind of disarming the people around her and then, you know, bringing the hammer down.
0: Yeah. Especially when the person that you're talking to has dragons, then you definitely want to have your guard up.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Always beware of people who are dumber than you with dragons, I think is the rule.
0: Now, this is really interesting when it comes to Survivor, because Survivor in its purest form is you getting to meet a bunch of strangers, uh, perfect strangers, not Cousin Balky or anything like that, but a bunch of people that you've never met before. And so a lot of it is um, sizing up people and sort of making first impressions of these people that you can meet. And there's a lot of people who have done a good job with pretending to be dumber than they actually are.
1: Yeah, uh, I had firsthand example of that with JT and Token Chains, who was very savvy, you know, very strategic, smart guy. And he just really played up that sort of good old country boy. Well, y'all, you know, I'm just a, a farmer or whatever he is, rancher. He says farmer. Anyway, uh, he played up the sort of like nice, naive country boy thing and uh, probably more, you know, in a way that just made the other people around him feel that they were more intelligent than him feel that they were kind of, you know, bringing this good old boy along for the ride when actually he was the one who was uh, pulling their strings. People love Southern people on survivor. Yeah. You just, you, for some reason you think you can trust them because the South has this, you know, like rich tradition of honor in a way that we like Northern city people, like we've, we have zero honor. And, um, but, but, uh, Yeah, they're they're just as devious as we are. You know, they just have like sweeter accents.
0: There's like this whole idea of like, oh, he's from the South. So he shook my hand. And so I know it's good because, you know, he was not going to lie to me. He's from the South.
1: Well, that's the other one, right? Like the classic one is Russell in, in heroes versus villains, where you know he really plays up this idea, like oh, like to, to the heroes, like he's just you know he just needs help, you know, help him. I mean, it's not, I guess that's like less an intelligence thing than it is. It's still the same, like basic principle of he plays you know subordinate and makes them feel dominant, and, and then as a result, he ends up totally screwing them over.
0: Somebody who did this really early on in the game and somebody who, um, I think maybe some people have forgotten about this was Roger in Survivor Australia, that he made everybody think that, um, he was just a, you know, just a, you know, a farmer, you know, he was Kentucky Joe, but, um, you know, he was a teacher also. Uh, and he was a uh, college uh, graduate and was somebody who was, you know, more well off than anybody had an idea about. And it was sort of like a big surprise to everybody. Like, actually, Roger is uh, very accomplished. And, uh, you know, everybody was like, what? So, I he was probably the first person in Survivor history to lie about their occupation, which is now such a standard thing on every reality show where it's like, well, I'm really, you know, I- I'm really a... Uh, chiropractor, but I'm gonna tell people I'm a plumber. Where, yeah, yeah.
1: you know they really T- Tony did this, right? He he's really a cop, but he said he was. Uh, what did he say he was like? A yeah, well, he said he was right? a
0: construction worker. Um, right. that he I think that that was more he had some issues with, you know, people, different people's perceptions of a police officer, where it's like, if you've had good experiences, uh, with police officers, you know, like I have, my father was a police officer. Like, I don't understand why he's lying about it, but there's other people who, you know, who've had bad experience with the police officers. And so that they he probably was very concerned that people were going to dislike him because he was a police officer. So, you know, no matter what job you pick, Like, uh, there are some things you should lie about, but I think that probably, you know, 80 to 90% of the people that lie about their occupation, it it really has no impact whatsoever on the game. But it
1: is the, you know, I think it is the case, though, that when when you enter Survivor, everyone sort of starts assessing each other, right? Like, you try to figure out who is this guy, what archetype is he, why was he cast? You know, is this the... Charming leading man. Is this the strung out old lady? Is this the, you know, is this the schemer or the mastermind? I know that was the case on my season. I tried to really play down the schemer and play up the kind of awkward city boy fish out of water thing. And I think that it's, you know, anyone coming into the game who is strategic and who is intelligent really needs to sort of de-emphasize that to make the people around them feel uh, smarter.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's a runner all throughout the history of the show where people who are not from the city seem to be able to try to push off on people that hey you know I'm not as smart as you guys are from the city in the first Survivor Sue Hawk talks about how you know Rich oh yeah Rich thinks that he's a city guy but you know I'm smarter than I let on in Survivor Africa Big Tom, while he doesn't come out quite and say it, there's a perception where he, you know, he's beating everybody in checkers, and Lex and Ethan are starting to talk about how they also feel like Big Tom is, there's more to meets the eye with Big Tom, even though he's sort of like doing crazy dancing and stuff like that, and being silly all the time, that there really is a savvy guy who is behind the scenes, a street smart guy, if not a book smart guy. Yeah. Another person that was able to also benefit from people thinking that they were dumber was Fabio from Survivor Nicaragua, who ends up winning the game. It was really, you know, his dumbness was what really endeared him to people.
1: Yeah. You know what? I have actually met Fabio and he pulled the same trick on me. I was I was convinced.
0: Yeah. And just to give you a sense of like, I don't think that Fabio was playing dumb. Uh, this is from an interview that he did with TV Guide um, back in 2010 after he won um, that the interviewer who was uh, Kate Stanhope asked him at one point in the game, you said the best thing you could do was play dumb. Did that strategy start from the very beginning? And he said pretty much not playing dumb but allowing myself to be dumb, and it's still truthful to me. That was the only game I could play. So, in in his case, you know, it was not necessarily uh, trying to be dumb, but not going out of his way to try to seem smart.
1: Right. That's interesting. That's a, that's a fantastic response.
0: Yeah. And so it's people like dumb. It's endearing. If you can, you know, if you can be dumb and make people think you're dumb, uh, that that's really good. And another area that this is, uh, important to think about when you're talking about survivor or reality TV, nowadays it's very common for the big fans of the show to end up on the show and I feel like that's a red flag. Cause, you know, when somebody shows up on the season and is like, oh my God, I'm a super fan of the show. I've watched every single episode, blah, 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 blah. And I'm thinking in my head, if I'm somebody, it's like, okay, this person is going to really be playing the game hard because they're such a fan of the show.
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I see that. You know, it's also though, you know, the challenge the challenge is how do you hide, you know, how do you be yourself though, right? Like you don't wanna disguise who you are because people will just smell that inauth- inauthenticity. So you have to be able to kind of couch it in a way that uh, that works, right? It's, everything is just like, does it work? And, uh, you know, you want to play dumb, but you also want to be like true to yourself.
0: Yeah. And I think that the answer is with this idea of, okay, I've seen every single episode. I'm a super fan. I think you just want to sort of like mellow it down. You don't want to come off as creepy. You just want to be, you know, excited about it. It's Sort of like if you were to, you know, meet a famous person, you know, you want to let them know like, Oh yeah, I love, you know, this is great. This is great. You know, I've always been a a fan, but it's like, Oh my God. I like, you know, and you start like, you know, freaking everybody out with how much, you know, I think that's a bad thing.
1: Right. And you, but you also don't want to be the one who's like, oh, I've never even heard of you, you know, because then you're obviously fake. So,
0: yes. You uh, want to have a familiarity, yeah. but yeah. you don't want to come off as obsessive.
1: Right. Um, you know, Green has this great line, play a sucker to catch a sucker. It's, I don't think it's you know, I don't think he came up with that. Uh, but I think that's it's a really good uh, lesson is that when people think they're getting the better of you that's when they're at their most vulnerable because they're so dialed into their scheme that you can kind of trap them with your scheme.
0: Exactly. You want to be the Kaiser Soze. Whenever you have the chance, let your competitors think they're smarter and craftier than you are. Then when they try to take advantage of your perceived weak mind, that's when they're most vulnerable for you to move in for the kill.
1: Law 22 is use the surrender tactic, transform weakness into power. What do you you think about this, Rob? Yeah, this
0: is a a really fun law from the book and one of the ones that I I really liked. And so the idea of this is, you know, you are outmaned, you're outgunned and you're about to lose, but you know, instead of going out in a blaze of glory or, you know, going into some battle where you're going to come away with nothing, the idea is to sort of wave the white flag and say, "No, I surrender. I give up, uh, you know, I you know, I'm I give up. I give up, you know." Don't get me. Don't hurt me. I surrender. And the person that you are, that is, you know, your attacker, your aggressor or or whatever. And, you know, whether this is in a courtroom or whether, you know, however you are being, you know, attacked, surrender is not really surrender, you know? the idea that what they say in the book is surrender isn't, you know, I'm giving up like, you know, I'm not going to keep trying. It's I'm buying more time. And that's what they talk about as the surrender tactic uh, in this book, because it gives you a chance to sort of, you know, get back up on your feet and come after this person in a way that they don't expect. And so you also shouldn't let the other person surrender also you you need to just sort of like they're surrendering but still just go ahead and and wipe them out
1: yeah that's a previous law is wipe out all your enemies um but, you know, so so now when this is the opposite, when you're when you're in the weaker position, you know, you want to be the one to surrender rather than <laughs> rather than get wiped out. Um, and, you know, I, I think that it's it's uh, very true in kind of the corporate world as well, where if your sort of projects are not getting through or for whatever reason, someone else has got the the, the you know, the dominant end of, of the you know, whatever, whatever issues being debated, if you sort of, you know, keep fighting them and, you know, kind of don't go along, you're going to get marginalized in a more significant way than if you say, well, I lost, but I'm going to embrace your cause. You know, you you become a big part of the project and then that gives you more leverage for when the next project comes along and you can kind of push your sort of thing through.
0: Steven, I watched Captain Phillips the other night, and I think he does a pretty good job of this, that those guys come on the ship. He's like, all right, all right, whatever you want. I'm going to go ahead. I'll do it. whatever you need. Let me take you around the ship. Uh, so he does a very good job of yeah. surrendering and basically you know, giving in to what the, your adversaries want. But in reality, you're just buy, buying more time for you know, the Coast Guard to get there and sort of bail you out or whatever, whatever it is that you need to do.
1: Yeah. And, you know, Balan Greyjoy, you know, in Game of Thrones, he bent the knee to Robert during Robert's rebellion. <laughs> but as soon as there was an opportunity, War of the sure. Five Kings, back comes Balan. You know, no loyalty to the Starks or the Baratheons.
0: Yeah. And what they say in the book is that, you know, the idea of surrendering is to gain access to your enemy and you can learn their ways. Uh, and become familiar with them slowly, and to you know conform to what they th- you know what what your enemy wants you to do. But in reality, you're just buying time to be able to you know get your forces back together. And I think a really great example of this going back to Survivor happens in Survivor Pearl Islands, where you know there's this whole thing that happens uh, towards the end of the pre-merge game, uh, you know, which is then leading into the merge game. Where you know Rupert had been at odds with Burton and Sean, and so those guys had been sort of making fun of Rupert. And then there's a whole thing that happens where Rupert ends up going to the uh, uh, the other team that they is he's able. There's they steal him for a night, and so uh, Burton gets voted off, and so they're trying to you know there's a whole all this drama going on in the in the Drake tribe and Rupert and Sandra and Krista they have a thing going on and so uh, Fairplay comes up with this idea that he wants to take out Rupert. And so he goes to Sandra and to Krista and he tells them about this idea: hey, come with me, let's vote with Trish and let's go ahead and, and vote out Rupert. And Sandra, you know, in true Sandra fashion, she sells Fairplay out and they tell Rupert, and Trish ends up getting voted off. And so after that happens, then you know, you have this scene where Rupert is just like screaming and yelling. He's like, "Who voted for me? Why did you do this? And Johnny Fairplay almost like he has his hands up. He's like, "Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, I did you know, I didn't mean it. We're good. And Rupert ends up accepting Johnny Fairplay's surrender. And then they go to tribal council again the next time. Each tribe has to vote somebody off before they get to the merge. And instead of voting out Johnny Fairplay, Rupert feels like that they've accepted Johnny Fairplay's surrender and they vote off Sean before the merge happens. And then... Coming back into the merge, as soon as Johnny Fairplay gets the chance that he gets the he gets the numbers from the Morgan people and Burton comes back into the game. And sure enough, first chance he gets, Johnny Fairplay votes out Rupert. When Rupert had him, they could have voted him out and he accepted his surrender. And Johnny Fairplay just bought more time with, you know, being nice to Rupert and saying he was sorry, but he did not mean it.
1: Uh, and another great example is uh, you know, similarly is Chris Doherty in in Vanuatu, who, at the final seven, you know, he's the last guy left uh, after all the guys have been eliminated, and uh, he knew he was pegged to be the next to go. and and he he really just played it up. like he was throwing in the towel uh, and that he was he was gone. And the very fact of him acting like he had surrendered, um, led the the leaders of the girls' tribe to just accept that he was no longer an enemy, and they turned their sights on Eliza, who who you know they they've been trying to get rid of since the first episode, um, and uh, they decided she didn't deserve to stay, and so they keep Chris around. Chris is kept on as a number and as a number for, for the different factions of the girls to sort of serve their own purposes. And um, as, once the girls turn on each other, Chris gets into a tight foursome and cements his place in the finals and then wins the whole thing. So by by pretending to surrender or even in, in some essence like surrendering at the final seven, you know, Chris was able to play along and then rise again.
0: Yeah, there really is something to it where it's like when you are so outnumbered, I think that the impulse of most people is like, well, I got to go on an immunity run now, and I need to win every single immunity. And that's how I'm going to get to the end. And while that's a possibility, the chances of that happening are super slim. Whereas if you were, you know, not trying in the immunity challenges and really giving the appearance that you're not trying to win the game, that you're surrendering, that's like, well, I just want to uh, like in the case of Tarzan, I really just want to get to the family visit, you know, that in in that case you can end up you know having longevity and making people think that you aren't you know trying to win at all costs cuz that's what scares people and if you can sort of like remove the fear about you is like hey i you know i barely care i'm just in it for you know i want to you know see if i can make a little more money or or whatever and I'm not really trying to go for it. And hey, by the way, if you need, whatever you need me to do, I'm, I'm with you and sort of surrender your vote to the powers that be. That's something that can really help you in this game, especially when things are looking very bad and you're in a bad spot.
1: You know, it's interesting with Survivor too, where you have this sort of, you know, conflict within a tribe and then the, tor- and then the two or the three tribes within the game where often a tribe that, is able to quickly sort out its power dynamics is able to do much better over time versus a tribe where there's a lot of conflict that was I mean you know in um in Survivor Karamoan the fans tribe, you know, there was this one clear majority, and uh, then there were the the cool kids, right? With which was Reynolds, Reynolds, and uh, Eddie, and the you know the Sherry part of that tribe clearly was just dominating the Reynolds, but Reynolds didn't surrender and he kept on fighting, and the tribe just never got cohesion because it was always torn apart by this dissension, and that gave the favorites tribe the ability to. Uh, just destroy them. And then if you look at the favorites tribe, you know, they very quickly kind of sorted out their problems, right? They got rid of Francesca and uh, even Brandon for a minute played along. Obviously, he sort of flamed out. But the people who were on the bottom of the favorites tribe played along, um, you know, and they as a result, they had this sort of semblance of cohesion in a way that the fans never did.
0: Yeah. So it's good to remember in Survivor and in business, like when when things look really bad, you know, explore all of your options, because, you know, as much as we say, you know, never give up and, you know, always keep fighting. There's a point where you're not stopping fighting. You're just making the person who is beating you and ultimately going to destroy you think that you're stopping fighting. But in reality, you're just buying more time to figure out how to get back at them next. Law 23 is concentrate your forces. And now, this is something, of course, very important in real life and maybe even more important on survivors, Stephen.
1: Yeah, the idea behind concentrate your forces is you just want to, you know, we all have a limited number of power or energy, you know, as an individual, for sure, you have a limited, num- you know, you have a limited amount of attention, you have a limited amount of energy, you know, or if you're in survivor in an alliance, you have a limited number of votes and you want to just concentrate your energy, concentrate your focus and do one thing well, you know, focus on a few key sources of power or a few key weaknesses in your opposition. And don't try to do everything at this, all of the, at once, because you're going going to be so diffuse. You're never going to get anything accomplished.
0: Yeah. And I think this is really important in life as well, because I think that I I know personally, I've found this with trying to do everything that I do with the podcast and the website and trying to expand into covering more and more things. But you really want to make sure that you have one thing that you do and you do it particularly well, because being mediocre at a bunch of different things is not ultimately going to make you successful in any way. You really need to have one thing that you are known for, and that's really your calling card. And then, after you sort of can be established for that thing, then you can move on and branch out into other things. But until that point where you have that one thing that you are concentrating all of your energy and time and resources towards, then you basically have nothing without that.
1: And it's not just about you know your own skill set. One other thing that you know Green says some uh, says find the key patron or the fat cow. You know you want to find that one person or that one kind of series of events or sequence that will work for you and really focus on doing that rather than trying to be best friends with everybody you know you want to just really focus your energy there's a great quote in the book that I really like what is bloated beyond its proportions inevitably collapses what is concentrated coherent and connected to its past finds power so you don't want to get bloated beyond your proportions so you don't want to sort of bloat You know, whether that's, you know, just a general conception of your own capabilities or whether that's, you know, in Survivor and Alliance, you don't want to get too big.
0: Okay, so let's talk about some of the times in Survivor where people were able to effectively or ineffectively uh, concentrate their forces. And so there's really uh a couple of different ways that we could look at this. And I feel like one of the first classic examples of a failure to concentrate forces uh, happens in the first survivor, or you could, depending whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, this is either a chance to look at a time when somebody did effectively or did not effectively concentrate their forces. Because you have these two tribes of Tagi and Pagong, and the Tagi tribe ultimately realized, hey, if we concentrate our forces, if, you know, the five of us that are over here make an alliance, then we will be able to, uh, beat the, uh, beat the other group or stick together. And it will be mutually beneficial for all of us to concentrate our forces. Whereas the other people on the, on the other tribe, all of the Pagong people who I think that most of us felt like were the more fun group, the more free spirited group, uh, they, came into the merge and they did not have concentrated forces and they were sort of, you know, voting all over the place. They were voting for each other after the merge and they really had no idea what they were going for. And they just did not, weren't on the same page of being able to concentrate their forces, even though, you know, some people on their group said that that was what they needed to do, but they were just really in for a, shell shock once they got to the merge and these four people from taggy were able to ultimately uh, do their own thing.
1: I mean, we've seen that a lot sort of recently where small alliances are able to really have this great impact in on the game and that big alliances will fall apart because these small alliances are super concentrated on getting the job done. They're all voting together. They're all kind of going out with this mission, with this sense of their own smallness, really, uh, to you know win over key votes, to flip key people, whereas the bigger alliances come out with this kind of bigger this sense of of bigness and, and superiority and you know whether it's Tandang, whether it's timbira whether it's Galu, um they they just they fall apart there they're not able to kind of muster the energy to focus and concentrate and as a result they end up uh, losing the game um i mean is there is there some rule where if you have more than five people you know you're not going to be able to can we, can we make a general rule of thumb for that like an alliance over five is just never going to be able to stick together well I
0: think that's probably pretty good. Five is is pretty much the baseline. I think it depends on the number that you start in the game. So in a tribe of 10... You know, five is the magic, five is the magic number. And then you can sort of like, you know, for that first vote, it's 10, you know, you rarely are going to have a five, five split on that first vote. So, um, chances are you could probably, you know, the people see the tide going one way and they sort of all jump on board. And then after that point, yeah, five is a good number. I think that coach in South Pacific uh, made it work with six. Um, but, you know, that way he had a strong core leadership group at the top. Where, Who was it
1: that was, that was Coach, Edna? Oh, yeah, I guess I guess they had six with Cochran, right? Or, or did they have six and seven with Cochran? I think it was it, yeah.
0: seven with Cochran because yeah. it, was, it was Coach, Albert, and Sophie, and then they had Brandon, Rick, and Edna. Oh, and yeah, there was Cole. like a lot of like, okay, well, who's six? Is it Edna or is it whoever? And so I think that coach was able to make that work with six but he did have some help I think five is pretty much the magic number and really you know as Philip would tell you in the BR rules is you know you make an alliance but you make an alliance inside the alliance so really you know your forces are really kind of concentrated on that group of two or three and then secondarily on that group of five and then you know outwardly on you know whoever else you know just sort of like doing damage control and making sure the other people not in the five aren't you know coming up with a plan to get rid of you?
1: Yeah, a small group needs to be running things. I mean, as anyone who's ever been in a meeting where thing, something is getting decided by consensus uh, knows nothing will get decided or the thing that will get decided is the worst thing. Um, so, so, you know, you always want to have some kind of like key leadership that's just really focused on a very achievable goal.
0: Now, another place where concentrating your forces is a good thing to remember, and this is something that you and I have certainly discussed at length on the Survivor Know-It-Alls over the years, is the idea of the splitting the vote to flush the immunity idol. And I feel like that this ends up getting done probably more than necessary, I feel like more things can go wrong when you flush the idol than when you can do it right. Now I know that the the numbers have uh, borne out that for the most part things uh, have gone smoothly on this at a uh, a, pre- a pretty good clip, but I still feel like you know I almost feel like I would take my chances with putting the votes on just one person and not risking that if one person flips, the whole thing falls apart. Well, what's your take on this as far as keeping your forces concentrated? Cause we can talk about a couple of examples where the unconcentrated forces end up leading to somebody going home.
1: I think the split vote is good. You know, I think there are more examples where uh, you know, you vote for someone who plays an idol and then you're really out of luck. I think personally I would always err on the side of the split vote. You know, uh, of course, depends on a lot of things. You have to be really sure you've got everyone locked up. Everyone knows what they're doing. Survivor doesn't always cast the most intelligent people. So, you know, they, everyone needs to know who they're voting for. Um, and of course you have to be sure that your allies are loyal, right? Like that, that go. that comes down. That's like the most basic thing of all. Um, but I'm actually a fan of the split vote. I I don't think it's necessary. I think that's, that's a, you know, that's one strategic iteration of a concentrated force that if you have a concentrated force that is committed to getting out your opposition, then a split vote is one tactic. I don't necessarily think of it as a diffusion of forces.
0: I, you know, it really comes down to that, you know, depending on how many people are in the group. Uh, and as we see it, the old three, three, three is uh you tends to be when there are the most problems. Cause it could be one person switching is ends up uh, where it's, it goes haywire. I guess the, 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 what you have to sort of figure out is, is you know, the odds, if somebody has the immunity idol, and a lot of times the people don't even know if they have the idol. But let's assume that they an idol has been found and there's a one in three chance that they're going to play it on the right person. I guess you have a 66% chance of being right by just putting all your votes on one person, whereas I guess, uh, so you have a 33% chance of, you know, the worst case scenario happening. Whereas what is the percentage chance that somebody from your group of six is going to flip and, uh, then be a number for the other side?
1: Uh, Well, it do not Yeah. I mean, again, like it all comes down to situational, right? You can't make the general rule because, uh, you know, if, if you know that someone, that people aren't going to flip, you know, then you should then you should feel comfortable but if you know that people are not going to flip and you're wrong then you made then you made a huge mistake right yeah. so it just comes down to how good are you and how much control do you have in the, in that situation
0: In Heroes versus Villains uh, there was a 333 idle flush scenario that ended up happening where Seri really wanted to I forget who the ultimate target was whether it was Tom or Colby so I believe it was a 332 scenario there with right. with Seri And they were going to put three votes on Tom. The group of six would put three votes on Tom and three votes on Colby. And then what ended up happening was that uh, your boy JT ended up switching and then uh, Sari ended up being the one to to go home.
1: Yeah, I think it was like three and two. Or is that am I wrong? It was like there's that was when there were seven. Anyway, whatever it was, uh, the 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 vote split went wrong and the JT took great advantage of that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, right.
0: So remember, you always want to take on your opponent on your terms where you have the clear upper hand. Don't do your adversaries any favors by spreading yourself too thin and leaving yourself open to an attack that you could have prevented. Had your forces been
1: intact. Law 24, Rob, is play the perfect courtier. Now, uh, I've always thought of you as a pretty great courtier. So so what do you think about this? Well, I feel like that before we get
0: into this, I feel like, um, you know, courtier is not typically a word that everybody is familiar with. So I think we should sort of set up you know the context of courtier in you know the way that this book is written and the way that the actual book the 48 laws of power is written it talks a lot about court life and i'm not talking about like where eliza hangs out all the time this is the idea of you know (laughs) that you have a kingdom and you know sort of like in sort of like a game of thrones uh type world where you know the universe revolves around the king and then everybody is trying to uh suck up to the king and has like all the people around and so you sort of are like competing with the other people in the kingdom for the favor of the king and trying to you know gain more power in this kingdom and then you also could imagine this sort of setup in corporations and all sorts of places in our modern day world and of course then making the comparison to survivor as well so the courtier is basically the person who is a you know a citizen of whatever this ecosystem is and somebody who's vying for position with the other players that are in this sort of system, whether it's a kingdom or a corporation or or survivor tribe. So this chapter is sort of uh, a a really good catch-all, I feel like. It's the end of the first half of the 48 laws, and it gives us a lot of good things to keep in mind about the type of person that we want to try to be in the court.
1: Yeah, you know, and I think that this you're right, it's a catch-all. It just sort of kind of talks overall about the the way that sort of the the, the way that power is expressed uh, not just in the 17th century renaissance courts, but in high school, in corporations, in families, in friend groups, in everyday life, you know, power often comes down to the way that we deal with others. And I think that sort of is what all of these laws are Are roughly hinting at is that the things you say to people matter. The way you treat people will affect the way they treat you. Um, And so by playing the perfect courtier, you are being someone who says the right word at the right time, who is deferential to the people around you, who is graceful but also very uh, self-aware. You know, Green says, Courtiers are magicians of appearance, knowing things are judged as they seem. By kind of bringing all of these qualities into yourself and becoming this person, you will be able to succeed no matter what the court is that you're playing in.
0: Yeah, and I think that one of the interesting things about this chapter in particular is that some of the chapters are written as if you are the king or the boss or the leader of the tribe. And then other chapters like this one are more for people who are maybe are not necessarily running things or at least don't have the perception that they're the person running things. This is more for somebody who's more of the, you know, beta male or beta female in the group to sort of have in mind. Whereas there's the idea, of being a courtier is that somebody else is running the court. You are somebody who is vying for that power, but really secretly
1: trying to run these things. Right. You're running things through sort of the, you're through misdirection. I mean, I think Littlefinger in Game of Thrones is a great example Perfect. of someone who, uh, yeah, he like will say the right thing. He'll buy the right person. He will be noticed when he should be noticed, but he'll be invisible when he should be, you know, that kind of character, you know, the various characters, There's these people who are work their politics very subtly.
0: Okay, so in the book, they give us 15 laws of court politics to keep in mind, and these are all really good as far as, you know, comparing to the game of Survivor, so I just want to run through them uh, real quick. The first one, Stephen, is uh, avoid ostentation, and of course, that means that you should never quit.
1: Uh, The pun there, for those who missed it, was on Austin, who quit uh, Survivor, uh, whatever. Yes. And
0: and that's sort of, uh, you know, no sort of, you know, vulgar displays or, you know, showing off, you know, how much money you have. And, of course, in Survivor, we know that's uh, not not a good idea.
1: Yeah. Um, Number two is a practice nonchalance. And the idea being that... You don't, you know, once you do something incredible, you don't want to celebrate your victory. You don't want to rub it in your opponent's face. You don't want to seem awesome. You just want to be very at ease, you know, and graceful. And also,
0: I think that probably pertains to sort of just like, just have an easy way about you. You don't want to be stressed. Everything is, you know, you're easygoing and have sort of a, you know, a light, fun air uh, about you. The third one is be frugal with flattery. And a lot of people can overdo this with sort of being like the, uh, you know, kiss ass and, you know, basically like sucking up and like whatever the leader says, oh my God, that's such a good idea. And for the most part, people can tend to see through that. So if you're sort of like only do it a little bit it, that's probably uh, better than too much.
1: At the same time, number four is arranged to be noticed. And that is just, you know, something I experienced firsthand in Survivor, where everyone sort of thought I was the other guy. Like, you, it's important for your accomplishments and for the things you do to be noticed by your bosses or by whomever who is running the court so that, so that you can get the credit that you deserve for it.
0: Uh, They say number five is alter your style and language according to the person you're dealing with. So you want to be a chameleon. So when you're dealing with, you know, somebody who is mad, you know, you want to, oh, man, I'm so mad too. Uh, You're dealing with somebody who's lazy. You know, you don't want to be coming off and telling them like, you know, be like, you know, while they're like lounging around, you're picking up all the firewood. So whoever the person you are talking with, that's sort of like the attitude that you take on yourself.
1: The the sixth law is uh, never be the bearer of bad news, and this is of course everyone has heard this cliche, but it but it's true. You know you don't want to be the person who says the negative thing because you're going to be associated with that thing.
0: And then on Survivor, is that sort of like, hey, I heard that people are trying to vote you out. Is that would that be bad news?
1: Uh, that's a tough one. I, I as survivor. It's not really, there's not a lot of bad news that you get. Maybe I, you know, I, I just dumped out the rice, you know, you don't want to bear that bad news. <laughs> All right.
0: <laughs> uh, number seven is don't affect, uh, friendliness and intimacy, uh, with your master. You don't want to be the person who's, uh, sort of like getting in the way and saying like, Oh, I don't think you should be talking to that person because, uh, you know, th- nobody wants to feel like you're their
1: parent. Right um never criticize those above you directly That's right? a good one. Yeah, straightforward. You know, people don't love criticism generally and they certainly don't love criticism coming from their immediate uh, the people immediately below them who they kind of imagine are the ones who are supposed to be acting out their whims, uh, not criticizing their whims.
0: Uh, nine is be frugal and asking those above you for favors. This is important to remember, uh, in your work, you don't want to be asking your boss all the time, like, Oh yeah, could I, uh, blah, blah, blah. uh, cause that gets, that gets annoying. And, and certainly for the person who is the leader in your alliance, if you're making like, Oh, could I do blah, 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 blah. Um, that gets annoying as well.
1: Uh, number 10 is never joke about appearances or taste. And I actually really like this one because it, it, it infuriates me the way people will make jokes about someone else's clothes or someone else's preferences. You know, people believe in their own preferences. You know, when people put out, choose clothes, like people are picking out clothes. They are purchasing those clothes. They are making a conscious decision. And by joking about other people's appearances or taste, you're actually, you know, it's not a benign thing. You know, you, it's actually something you're, you're, you're attacking them.
0: Uh, 11 is don't be the court cynic. Of course, uh, you know, if you're negative all the time, that really rubs off on people and, uh, gets old very quickly.
1: 12 is be self-observant. And I, you know, I think this also gets to the heart of a lot of these laws is just be aware of, of yourself and, uh, the ways that you present yourself.
0: Right. 13 is master your emotions. Obviously, uh, you don't want to get too high or too low. Uh, That is all part of being a uh, good courtier to sort of just be somebody who is always sort of level headed and has a positive attitude.
1: Fourteen is fit the spirit of the times, which is a little bit more um, touchy-feely. But the idea is you want to be in tune with the overall philosophies that are around you. You don't want to be you know, the one who's way too avant-garde, who's saying these things that are way out of whack. You, know, you also don't want to be really retrograde and saying things that are you – know, you don't want to be the one who's saying, I think the world is flat. You know, no, one, no one will believe you. <laughs>
0: right. And the last one is be a source of pleasure. And this is a really, really important one for being a good uh, courtier is that you want people to like being around you. And we and we talk about this a lot where if you are giving people positive feelings every time they're around people, you're fun to hang out with, then people are going to want to keep you around and and. In particular, there's two people in Survivor history that we want to highlight, that the people that were perfect courtiers, and one of them is Sari Field. And Sari is somebody who is just, you see her and you just imagine this big smile on her face. And she is somebody, Stephen, that really, if you go down the checklist, she's somebody that pretty much always was uh, all good with these 15 rules.
1: Yeah and in her her first season in Panama right so she was she was always going to be the next one to go uh, once the tribes had that sort of first merge, Suri was always as a part of the older woman tribe. She was always on, she was immediately on the outs. And it really seemed to everybody that she was going to be the easy, obvious vote. And just by always saying the right thing, being out of the way, doing the perfect amount of work, but not drawing attention to herself as like, look at me, look how hard I'm working, you know, just by completely blending in and, be, you know, counseling people when they needed counseling, just saying the right word at the right time, she was able to extend stay till she was all the way to the very end and it really seemed like she could win the whole game.
0: And then another person that uh, you and I are both fans of is Kim Spradlin who was so perfect on Survivor One
1: World. Yeah, you know, people think of her as the leader, but actually if you go back and watch One World, she wasn't the person who emerged out of the gate as the leader. She was the person who was controlling everybody around her by being so likable, by being so positive, by being so nice, by saying the right things, by blending in with everybody.
0: She was the one that she actually was volunteered for Sabrina to be the leader. She She didn't want to have that leadership target on her back
1: right she really wanted to get out of the way of that and for this very reason you know because you do, if you're the leader then you're a giant target but if you're if you operate you know to the leader's side you're able to really influence things without without sticking out
0: so you know whether it's survivor or whether it's your office you just want to be this fun source of you know positivity who has you know smart opinions that aren't cutting or or negative. And more and more, your people are just going to want to have you around. And the more people want to have you around, the more power you're going to have because you're going to have access to all sorts of things that the other people who get shut out of these meetings and, and decisions are just going to be on the outside looking in while you're there controlling everything from the inside.